The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and flower arranger. You are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's presentation covers the 1992 science fiction horror sequel Alien 3, starring Scorley Weaver, Charles S. Dutton, and Charles Dance, and directed by David Fincher. My guest is Anthony Malone, and you join us on top of an oil rig at dusk. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? Well, um... Okay, great. I've got a bit of a sore throat, and I can feel something moving in my chest. Should I be worried? Yes. Don't worry, I'll do the surgery later. Thank you, Dr. Limbo. (laughs) Slightly eviler laugh than I was intending. So what can you tell me about Vincent Ward? Oh, God. Um, (laughs) The hard one first. Yeah. um, I know that he contributes... Isn't he a long-term contributor to the Alien saga? No. Isn't he? I'm sure he's got an input into this film, which this is what, film? by the way, what, we, what have you downloaded? Oh, it's, oh, it's Alien 3. A- Alien Cubed or Alien 3? I didn't download it. I watched the DVD, <laughs> like everybody else. No, I meant, I meant that your listeners will be downloading Oh, your, the listeners, yes. And it's probably going to be, listener. hopefully, listener, you're, you? um, you're new. This is probably a good entry point for uh, um, uh, Limbo listeners. Um, I, I suspect they're a slightly more obscure. Every thing. episode is, an, is a great well, entry absolutely. point. In fact, I am an entry point, as as my bosses have often pointed out in yes, the workplace. Yes, I've read I'm a letters. colossal entry point. <laughs> I've, I've seen the graffiti. Anyway, Vincent Ward, um, he's a writer, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, yes, he is. Oh, well, that's good. Um, yes, he's a New Zealand filmmaker, and... Uh, in the late 80s, he made a film called The Navigator, A Medieval Odyssey. I've heard of The Navigator. Which, or I might have heard of Flight of the Navigator. Which is quite different. Okay. Um, and that was a story about a group of medieval peasants attempting to escape from the plague by, uh, I think, digging a tunnel to the underworld, except they arrive in present-day New Zealand. Oh. So it's a strange, uh, slightly Gilliam-esque, fantastical story. And this attracts a lot of attention in Hollywood, and people were beating down his door trying to get him involved in their their new projects. And one of the ones that really captured his attention was a third alien film. Mm. And he conceived the idea of uh, Ripley arriving on a wooden planet populated by monks, and the alien coming amongst them and devastating this landscape as some kind of demon creature. Now, I had heard of The Wooden Planet, um, and 
I I'm not steeped in in alien law enough to um, to follow this sort of excellent material. The wooden planet has always struck me as a really silly idea, I have to say. Um, but um, horses for courses. Um, this idea didn't find too much favour with the studio because we'd had Alien, which is a traditional haunted house movie we're in space. Yes. We've had Aliens, which is a Vietnam movie in mm, space. Indeed. And for Alien 3, it was going to be about some monks and a wooden planet and lots of kind of imagery out of the Book of Revelation and that kind of thing. Well, where do you think this idea might have come from? He said with a gleam in his eye. Ha ha ha. Listener, I have stumped Limbo. Because in the same year as Aliens, um, the name of the Rose was on. Oh, okay. And. it bears a striking similarity to a number of elements in, in Alien 3. Um, now, I'm not saying there's a direct um, through line there, but I just thought that was an interesting coincidence. There was maybe a, a creative vogue for yeah. uh, medievalism at the time. I mean, uh, as I said, Terry Gilliam and... And in sci-fi during the 80s, I'm thinking particularly being Banks, where you'd get onto a planet and it'd be full of really crazy... He, when he came out with Consider Flebus, and there's a whole um, sequence... Is it really called Flebus? It because is. that's a really funny word. Tell that to T.S. Eliot, because it's a quote from The Wasteland. <laughs> yeah, but T.S. Eliot also came up with those fucking stupid cat's names, didn't he? There's, I, I concede, yes. Clearly T.S. Eliot was an idiot. And what, a, was a, what a dickhead. Well, I mean, the guy should really learn to write, really. Um, but in Consider Flebus, there's a whole sequence um, where they land on a, an island full of um, cannibals and they were all this weird worshipping stuff. So suddenly religion uh, was, was back on the, uh, on the menu. They could kind of depict it and they were depicting these things suddenly in cinema as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it obviously been around for, for decades in in SF, but but I just thought that was an interesting, particularly because it came out in the year of Aliens, um, and I think you're right. The studio wanted probably what fanboys wanted, which was Aliens galore. Aliens Part Two. Yes, or Earth versus Aliens, exactly. um, something much more conventional. And as we will see, this is not a conventional film. Well, one of the other ideas that was looked at during the development of the third Alien film was uh, a script by William Gibson. Ah, um, the inventor of the term cyberpunk. cyberspace. Absolutely, uh, and that was very much Aliens Part Two in a uh, shopping centre space station. Mm. So, do you prefer shopping centres to wooden planets? Um, no, I hate shopping centres. I mean, the thing is, it, it would be Dawn of the Dead with aliens. Yes, exactly. Yeah, um, and Dawn of the Dead works because it's making a point and I think doing the mm. same thing again ten years later but mm. with aliens instead maybe Gibson was reaching for something else um, I've read literally nothing he's ever written so you're, uh, you're the you're the literary SF guy um, do you think he would have had something worthwhile to yeah, say he's a very time? interesting writer he he uh, the only thing I, that I've made a start on his uh, to my shame is the difference engine which is um, what if um, Alan Turing invented the computer um, a century before what impact would that have on society um, 
I, I have to say I'm, I'm not particularly running to revisit all the cyberpunk stuff. Um, it was really of the vogue back in the 80s and it massively influenced um, cinema. I mean, people say that Blade Runner was influenced by the cyberpunk, The Matrix, anything that these days occurs on a computer, um, Cronenberg and um, Existence. Existence. Okay, Existence, yeah, that's um, with a Z on the end. Um, and a capital X and a small case E. But at Gibson would have been... Um, he was clearly just seen as an ideas man um, and zeitgeisty, and let's mm. absolutely uh, mine him for ideas, which is absolutely fine. Um, so they had these various scripts floating about. Vincent Ward was going to be directing, and eventually the studio got cold feet, and Ward was shown the door, which he didn't like. They hit evac. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, there may there may have been lawsuits, I believe. Oh. Um, uh, the script was massively rewritten. Yeah, they cast around for directors to manage this increasingly yeah. troubled-looking project, and eventually they settled on a young filmmaker who'd, oh, well. who'd, who'd not done. A, he'd only made music videos to that point. Um, a uh, a fellow who they thought would be suitably malleable, a suitable yes man. Unfortunately, yeah. he was David Fincher. Absolutely. Who is the opposite of a yes man. Yes. And um, now, uh, as I've said uh, on a previous podcast, I'm, I am I am slightly older than you. And I saw Alien 3 at the cinema. You didn't, I take it. You caught up with it. No, I was 10. You were a little. Um, and this preamble was certainly in the air before the film debuted. There was just a bit of a bad vibe about Alien 3. Um, the two previous films had cemented themselves already as being... I don't want to use the word classic, because I think that's really overused and misused. Popular but, classic. But, yeah, a, a excellent pieces of popular culture, which they barely put a foot wrong. And, um, and I have great memories of growing up with the, the first two films, um, which I won't bore you with. But um, I was about... Um, this came out in 92, didn't it? Yeah. So I was 19, and that hit me right in the middle of, a, of peak cinema viewing time. I went through a couple of years where it was where I was heavily into going to the cinema over and over again, and I saw Alien 3. And I, I was trying to remember um, the reactions of it. I remember seeing very grainy stills in things like Starburst. Um, there was a sense that there was something off about the film, that there'd been production issues running up to it. And then um, the shots of Ripley... Um, were put out of her shaven head and looking really grim and um, that wasn't a great marketing tactic then the poster came out and the poster looked cheap now I've seen various posters uh, there's one which has the alien sort of in a swirl which looks just like a bit of placeholder marketing but I think that the poster you're referring to is just the one that's a close shot of the alien looming in on Ripley's face um, there is, yeah, I, there's that. Or is, there's, the, there's, sort of, there's, there's another one. There's the logo I'm thinking specifically of. Oh, okay. Which, and I think the, um, if you wanted to in, hit one thing about this film, which is emblematic of all of its issues, it's the use of that number three, which for some reason they turn it into alien cubed. Um, and there's no explanation for why. It's clearly just a, a marketing branding logo rubbishy thing it means nothing so this was being mishandled and um 
I remember going to see the film. I think I saw it on my own. And um, as we are going to pick over the the, the film itself, it's become increasingly um, apparent um, why I had the reaction that I did, which was that I felt uh, borderline sick, uh, claustrophobic, um, nauseous, thoroughly depressed, um, sneakily impressed. Um, and I staggered out of the cinema thinking, um, where have I seen that before? Because I had seen something very similar the year before, particularly the end. Dick Tracy? Nope. I know what you mean. There were concerns about that, but I couldn't think of a way around it. Are you talking about the same thing? Yeah. About um, the... Spoiler alert. <laughs> About the ending. Yeah. Where yeah. with the alien covered in goo, covered in molten metal. Uh, yes. Yeah. And and what happens to Ripley? It looks suspiciously like the end of Terminator 2. And in fact, the word Terminate is used on a screen from a message from the, the network in this film. Cameron really took against this film. He said it was a slap in the face. Um, for which I have to say, I applaud David Fincher. If anyone deserves a slap in the face, it's bloody James Cameron. Um, who I personally think is a rather toxic um, and not, not particularly an artist. Unfortunately, he's a rather good storyteller. Um, he's a very basic level storyteller. Yeah, he can do nuts and bolts. And I think actually that's the problem with this film. It doesn't really get the nuts and bolts quite right. Um, it's, getting, it's getting other stuff very right. Very right. Yes. And the creation of the whole world of mm-hmm. Fury Run 161 is the work of a director who knows how to construct an environment and create a mood perfectly. I'm so glad you just said that. I'm going to describe a film to you. Okay. And I want you to tell me what this film is. Is it Living Let Die? No, although great film. Um, and uh, you're going to get this within one sentence because, listeners, we all know Jeremy's very good on this sort of stuff. So I want you to um, keep your powder dry until I get the end, OK? I'll tell you when I guess it, but I won't say what my guess is. OK, so big franchise film I'm talking about. Um, it's a female star. Her head's shaven. She's surrounded by lots of guys with shaved heads in a very, very well-realised future shock dystopia. There's a bit of religion oh, in play. Yeah. There's a pregnant woman. There's no sophisticated weaponry or modern technology. Falling water appears in the finale. Um, The heroine becomes humanity's champion. The film ends with her rising instead of falling. What's the name of this character, Jeremy? Oh, Furiosa. And what's the name of the planet in Alien 3? Fury 161. So I'm not saying that there's a direct uh, influence here, but there are no new ideas. Um... I can imagine that um, there might be some uh, homaging there because George Miller has never been one to uh, mm. uh, allow a good source material to go unmined. And I mean, there are there are serious, numerous elements that, that the two films share. Mm. But the number one difference, apart from the fact that um, the script is, is better put together, you've got Fincher at the outset of his career. You've got George Miller with decades of directing experience pulling off an audacious action film. Um, when it comes to David Fincher, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, have you seen any of his pop videos? Yes. Name one. Uh, express Yourself. And what's the basis of that video? Um, 
What did he rip off? What did Madonna ask him to do in that video? Rip off Metropolis. Exactly. He's, we've got a film fan behind the scenes already. He's just, he's um, he's displaying his cinema credentials. He he knew his stuff. He did before he walked on the set. Mm. And something that his other films have shown is that he is. I I've, I've I think I've referred to him before as being comparable to Stanley Kubrick in mm. the level of detail at which he operates. Mm. Everything is thought through to the nth degree. And do you think a slight coldness? A slight coldness, but I think the not the emotional distance. No. Um, I would say that's perhaps a bit more Christopher Nolan. Yes. That kind of st- just stepping away and just watching as an outside observer. There's a slight lack of emotional effect with Christopher Nolan's films. You don't come out in a, in a sobbing heat unless you're a member of UKIP and you've or just watched you- Dunkirk. Yeah, we won't go into that. Uh, or you were watching uh, Interstellar, where Nolan's really trying to He's be emotionally. He, he was really trying it, yeah. and it doesn't really work. Um, yeah, but, I, but I would say that with Dunkirk, he sort of says, "Well, I'll just show it, and I just won't engage." And that's kind of I thought the happy medium. Mm. Um, well, you're right. Let's let's not. And, and, and waste time talking about. He's, he's got his next film. In preparation now, I'm thrilled to find out what it could possibly be. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've been rude about Christopher Nolan. I've, I, I must say, I, I loved him. Um, I loved Inception when it came out. I thought that was just then perfectly timed. Um, I, I liked the Batman films, um, but obviously, I'm very interested to see what he does. And it sounds like he's he's cooking up a fantastic piece of cake for um, uh, the next film. So. Um, uh, anyway, we mustn't talk about films we're looking forward to. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you another question before? before uh, I'm sorry to interrupt your your usual um, interesting, detailed um, pre-production talk, but um, we're watching. Well, we're talking about this the week before Easter. Yes. So, a revolutionary leader of a bunch of religious types who are celibate. Um, they're outcasts. They are battling against a bunch of elite, uh, an elite cadre stalked by the devil. Um, this uh, religious leader endures physical torment, sacrifices themselves with arms outstretched to save us, the innocent. Uh, returns from the dead, um, is revered, imitated to this day, studied. Yes, oh, right. resurrection. I- What's the next film called? Resurrection. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> um, studied by um, grief-stricken old men, Ridley Scott, um, brooding about the meaning of life. Show this film to any priest, or indeed Mel Gibson, they would really get this film. Oh, Mel Gibson loves violence. He, oh, well, yeah. And this is the Passion of the Christ gender-swapped version. This should be called Alien Stations of the Cross. Um, I, again, I, I think it botches the whole religious angle of it. Oh, you know what they should have called it? Alien Golgotha. That would have been very nice. A, a little bit on the nose, considering she does well, strike yeah. the, the uh, cross poise at the end. But poise, um, yeah, pose. Poise. <laughs> um, You've been having too much Cornish. <laughs> oh, wow. too much scrumpy. Um, well, one of the the themes that I thought up for the whole trilogy is that it's the arc of life. Oh. The first film is about birth. Indeed. The second film is about life, experience, family. And the third film is about death. 
that's excellent. Um, I wish that were the case and that it, it had consciously been put together like that. It would be like the, um, the Three Colours trilogy, but set in space. Well, I mean, clearly it wasn't deliberate because no. all three films kind of all exist as separate ed- entities and at least one of them was bodged together mm. from bits and bobs and then we've got the fourth film and then we've got oh, all the others. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where the Alien vs Predator movies fit in. Uh, I think they go rather nicely in the bin. In the bin, yeah. I, I, I can't really get into them, to be honest with you. Um, the second one is the one where they have aliens running rampant on present-day Earth, and it's fucking terrible, despite that. I mean, that just makes me want to, want to take a look at I know. it. You think, but, this is going to be yeah. great. Obviously, this is going to be great. No, it's awful. I, I've got up to the bit with Ewan Bremner in the helicopter heading towards the Arctic base in the first one. Um, with Colin Watts' face having appeared in a helicopter um, to to co-op the female protagonist, and then I just think, oh, you know, it's just not made. It, you you realise that the directors of the, at least the original three films uh, do have a vision, and they are very professional products. If you look at the chestburst scene in in Alien, um, that is a piece of pure SF schlock. And in, in oh, a novel, yeah. it's just a monster moment. But it is done, the production is top-notch. The acting is totally believable. Um, they, they treat the whole thing with total seriousness, and the result is that it becomes a complete um, cultural flashpoint. Um, Alien is a monster movie. It's, a, it's Like I said, it's a haunted house movie yes. in space, but it is made by people who take it seriously and are making it... They're treating it as a prestige production. So Absolutely. Let's make this real. Let's make this like the whole used future aesthetic, mm. which reaches its apotheosis in Alien 3, where everything's falling to bits and it's the end of days. Mm. Let's, let's treat this seriously. So what, what would this be like if it were really happening? What, how would these things work? What would the spaceship be like? What would these spacesuits be like? You know, they'd be sitting around having a meal at some point. Yes. So it's all taken seriously, but not too seriously to make it absurd but enough so that it becomes credible and engaging rather than just yeah. silly nonsense with Vincent Price. Mm. Not that I've got anything against Vincent Price, but he's kind of the hallmark for that kind of carnival bar. Yeah, that there's be the smell of cheese. Of a, the William Castle-type movie. And Aliens is... It's a, it's a Vietnam B-movie, but in space. It is. And I don't like Aliens. I'm glad you said that. I think it, it's definitely a film that... I liked it when I was six. I have a great, great couple of memories about Aliens. But yes, as I got older, I've realised, uh, oh, it's just not that interesting. Rewatching Alien Three, I thought um, there's, I mean, as as we will prove, there's an awful lot to talk about. But with Aliens, could we do a two-hour podcast on that? No, I'm sure there are our podcasts out there, but um, I'm not sure we'd be talking about. Um, it in much thematic depth or, or anything like that. We'd James probably be talking Cam- more James about James Cameron's not a thematic no, filmmaker. Really. He's not. Right, he's not much of a character filmmaker. No, he doesn't. He's he tells stories and spins yarns. But um, name me one of the characters from Avatar. Jake. What's his last name? Sully. You really had to reach for that, didn't you? And I. I know what you mean. No one on the street would. Those well, Avatar has not lodged itself in the the uh, no. cultural consciousness. That's it's like everyone's forgotten that. I hate Avatar. I thought it was terrible. I loathed it. It with was a passion. the. It was the. I mean, I could guess where the story was going. I guessed the final shot an hour early. Mm. I knew it was going to end like that. I knew that there's oh yeah, at some point 
Oh, he's had to learn to fly the, the space mm. dragon thing. Well, he's obviously going to fly it into battle at the end of the movie because that's how this thing works because Cameron's not very good at writing. Yes, I, I mean, I, I hated it so much that I was really depressed to see Sigourney Weaver in the middle of it all. Um, I liked the shots of the spaceships, of them being like HD and, and what he does there, but the second they go onto the funny planet of the Smurfs, I'm out the door, I can't do it. Um, and also the, the evil guy, the evil military guy in it, is just a piece of ham. Yeah. Um, but anyway, there's um, another couple of observations before we, we pile into this. this. This film came out in 91. 92. I want to say it came out a year before Jurassic Park. Yes. Because there's CGI in this movie and it's poorly composited. Mm. But for an audacious technical exercise, it takes balls to do a CGI alien, which everyone knows the look of, the year before Spielberg nails it with photorealistic dinosaurs. There is one thing with this film that could instantly make much more sense of it, and that is if it was in Russian. Oh, yeah. Because this is about a gulag, and it abandons the Hollywood conventional narrative because Scott and Cameron let Ripley live. They present a really brutal universe, but she prevails, and she battles through, and she's triumphant at the end. Fincher torches all of that. He says, no, we're going to take all of those rules, but it's going to kill her, and that's the universe. And that's a really anti-Hollywood touch. And I don't know whether that's in the, you know, obviously it's in the script, but... It's a film that starts with the, with the pretty young girl from the previous film being drowned mm. and just killed off immediately. Yes, bef literally before... I mean, we're in, the, in a cultural moment where everyone's raving about Marvel, going, oh, it's so brave how they killed half the cast. They haven't... But, but they haven't really. They're coming back. Yeah. Fincher did it in the well. 90s and he does it before the end of the opening credits. That's that's pretty spectacular. Yeah, and, and uh, appropriately enough, he got crucified for it. Well, he did. <laughs> and, it, and it bombed as well, we should say. Um, well, he... it didn't bomb. It did. It underperformed. It made its money back. Mm. It did well enough for them to justify doing Alien Resurrection only five years later. And that was then the shortest gap between Alien movies. Mm, mm. I went to see that cinema. I didn't. You want my casual summary? Uh, is it four letters? <laughs> very, very odd film. But we'll save that for another. Well, even if we, we were not touch on that. Um, the movie starts. The movie starts with the 20th Century Fox logo, and the the last note of the fanfare is left out, and we just and it just drops away into this abyss as we pan up into the the heavens, and we have this storytelling montage and oh whoa whoa hold it right there okay my brother's a musician and i emailed him and i said watch the opening of alien 3 tell me what happens uh, with the 21st century 21st <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore 20th century fox um music and it's called an interrupted cadence i see and it's used to build tension and um uh, he really liked he was tickled by what it did um and as you say, it's a really good start. Um, it's like when someone's about to sneeze, but you cut away from the scene before they actually sneeze. Yes. It's, it, it doesn't have that release of tension, yeah. that, that sense of completion that you need. Completion's the key word there. And, when, and it's a, a, a neurological thing. We're looking for the end of the phrase, basically. Um, he also watched half an hour of Alien 3. Um, and then turned it off. And then turned it off. <laughs> and his capsule summary was total bollocks. 
Uh, well, I don't think it's total bollocks. Well, but he's he knows awful. a lot about music. He certainly, he certainly does. Um, so yeah, uh, there's a, a montage, and it's it's a nice sign of Finch's knack for visual storytelling, mm. because with no dialogue, we're brought right up to date. Mm. Um, Ripley, Hicks, and Newt are on the Sulaco heading back from. Is it LV forty six? Oh God knows. Um, and there's something scuttling around. There's a fire. The uh, three cryo tubes are jettisoned, and that heads down towards the nearest planet, which is Fury one six one. Do we not get a shot of someone with a face hugger on their face? I believe we do. Which means, and uh, if it's Ripley, then we're talking she's doomed from the start. Mm. Um, you can't escape death. No, and that's the whole film: is that she's on, the the clock's ticking right from the word go. I think it's a brilliant opening. Uh, I think it's um, horrifying, and I think the effects are amazing. I love the shot of the shot of the 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 capsule plunging away from the ship. The capsule, um, the camera follows. It's behind the the bulk of the the bulkhead of the ship. Follows the capsule out, and then it turns round to the planet. Great soundtrack, would you say? Elliot Goldenfeld's music. I think it's superb. It's brilliant, isn't it? Um, And obviously I've taken tons of screenshots here. I love the moment where the planet is introduced and it just comes up with maximum security. Mm. And, yeah, talk about foreboding. And you're just like, oh, this isn't going to end well. Really, really unsettles you, really um, puts you off base right from the word go. It's... It's creating the dangerous situation straight from the off. It's mm. subvert. I mean, the ending of Aliens is really silly, I think, with the lovely gentle music as they're getting into their, their sleepy tubes. Mm. Oh, will we dream on the way back to Earth? Oh, I don't know. Why don't you close your eyes and find out? Oh, shut up. Yeah, it's, you're going to be in counselling for the rest of your life, little girl. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all the nuance that we expect from James Cameron. Yes. Um... <laughs> I'm so glad this is turning into a Cameron trolling session. I hope he downloads this. He's a great. Too. He's a great director. I think Terminator, Terminator Two, mm-hmm. are terrific movies. I think The Abyss is underrated. I think that's probably a, a future candidate mm-hmm. if I, if he ever releases it on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, a lot of his films aren't very good. Mm. True Lies. True Lies. Uh, uh, he's a great. Te- a great technical. Director, and he wanted to have a go at doing his own Bond film. And boy, does he! I and mean, a lot like of, he refilmed Goldfinger. Um, some of some of the stuff in there is really great. Really, you think that the, you know the scene that I'm going to talk about in True Lies, which is entirely oh, yeah. objectionable? It's yeah. the Jamie Lee Curtis dance scene. I was thinking about the um, the, the car chase along the key, the Florida Keys bridges, and the bit where he, the bit where, um, <laughs> in the opening sequence where Arnold Schwarzenegger goes up to. Um, uh, one of the security guards at the reception and says something in Arabic and the subtitles say hey where's the bathroom I've got to take a leak in a brackets perfect Arabic oh yes it does I'd <laughs> forgotten that Yeah, I'd love to get Art Malik's take on that film these days I bet it would be ambivalent to say the least where, the, where he's trying to film the um, the hostage video and the guy holding the camera is too scared to tell him that the battery's running out oh uh, yeah there's a lot of I mean, I mean, as you say, there aren't objections to the things in there. But I thought, with a, with a director who had a lighter touch, that could have been a really great film. Yeah, and a, and a clearer, and who wasn't a sociopath, obviously. Mm. 
Now, you and I watched the extended version we did of Alien 3. And uh, when the four Alien films were being prepared for deluxe DVD release, there's already, of course, the director's cut of Aliens, um, a, uh, an extended version of Alien Resurrection was bodged together mm. with a bit of help from Jean-Pierre Jeunet. Ridley Scott sort of shrugged and put some deleted scenes back in and, and vocally said, the version that came out before is my preferred cut, but they wanted an extended version, mm. so here it is. Mm. I actually saw that in the cinema, and that was his introduction, and he's never looked more bored. Oh, so right. They wanted an extended version, so here it is. Uh, it's not my preferved version, but it's fine. Yeah. I mean, you've paid your money now, so what and do you want? And a man whose director's cut of Blade Runner is shorter than, than uh, the original. He tightens it up a little bit. Well, he it, just, it needed a few nips and tucks yeah. here and there, and the, finish, the, the final cut of Blade Runner is perfect. Yes, yeah. Um, but when it came to asking Finch to do a director's cut, he said, no, not going near it. I don't have anything to do with it. I wash my hands of it. I'm you so do what you glad want. you've said that. Shall I read you out this uh, where this comes from? Okay. Because I'm sure you've seen this. Um, have you grown to like it, says the interviewer, since then, Alien 3? God, no. Audience laughs, but I don't look at anything after it's done. So the alternate cut on the DVD special edition, whatever it is, that's not yours. Fincher replies, I don't know who did it. I've never seen it. I can't comment on it. I imagine that it is a lot closer to what he wanted. I agree. Um, Would you agree that it's it's clearly, it clearly rescues the film? It's an improvement on the theatrical cut, but I think the theatrical cut is very good. I think this clarifies a lot, mm. uh, particularly the whole Golic subplot. Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. Which was a bit sort of choppy and unclear in the, in the theatrical cut, but here it's like, okay, now we get it. So I, I haven't seen the the Bowdlerized original version for for years, but am I right in thinking? Paul McGann basically gets about two shots in the original version. He's of the film. hardly in it. Yeah, and in fact, his his I think on one of the extras, he he talks about how his friends were going. Were you in that film? Because when you watch the the directors in in quotes, the extended cut, cut yeah. McGann is crucial to to the plot, and um, and it's I, I just think how how could the original survive without him? He I mean he's got to release the alien at at, at the end to set up the finale. Um, but they literally just slashed it. It's they, they never even trapped the alien in the first place. So the whole... Ah, oh, that's interesting. That whole, See, this that, is whole, that whole plan goes completely wrong. And in the in the theatrical cut, all it, the only purpose it serves is to cut down the number of characters you have to deal with. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember... I remember... Uh, well, obviously, I remember being seeing it in the cinema. I don't remember in the cinema thinking that made no sense. I think I probably thought what I thought when rewatching it now, which is that most of these are red shirts. The prisoners, a lot of them are very, uh, they're just there. If you'd asked me, having watched it, was Paul McGann in that film, I would have gone, what? No, there's only one guy from With and I in that film. No, there's two. No, in the cinema oh, version. Yeah. Well, there were nearly three. No. What? Apparently, David Fincher is a big fan of With and <laughs> Really? I've seen I've seen him interviewed when he's um, being asked about things he likes, and he's actually quite a sort of cheery, chirpy fellow, yeah. which is weirdly disconcerting. But he's a big fan of Ruth and I, and he was very impressed by Richard E. Grant's performance. 
and he wants to cast Grant as Clemens. Oh, wow. However, I believe Grant was busy filming Hudson Hawk. What? I don't think, I don't think I've ever seen that. What's, uh, what's that film? That's that film you love, isn't it? So, um, <laughs> Listener. So, so he wasn't available. Um, so instead we have Charles Dance, which seems like... Sorry, sorry we've, run out of, we've run out of fish paste. We'll have to have caviar. Indeed. Um, and um, we, we've kind of... We've skipped a little bit over the establishing have, shots of... Um, because the, uh, the arrival on the planet of, of the, uh, the EEV is totally different in the, in the extended cut. Mm. Because we have the scenes of a man and, and long coat walking along this mm. bleak post-industrial shoreline that looks like the end of Get Carter. Mm. And it's Charles Dance with a shaven head. And it's if you contrast it with the start of Aliens, where the director is, is very techy, he's basically an engineer with a camera... Um, the start of Aliens is that the ship, Ripley's ship, coming out of the darkness of space and approaching the camera. So you're looking at a bit of a metal approaching with you. Fincher has a tiny little figure resolving into a human being coming right up to the camera. So instantly, this is about people. This is mm. going to be about character, at which I really like. I, I'm, I was vaguely aware that it was slightly different. I just thought they'd put back in a few more um, of the great establishing shots of all the gantries. It looks like some sort of spaceship building place but it's a it's a wonderful it's setup. Like, it's like a dockyard that's been abandoned for a thousand years mm. yes it's um, very atmospheric and it makes it because because within the story it's been maybe 10 or 15 years since since that place is in use i thought wow that planet's really harsh because mm. it looks like it's been fossilized because it's it's meant to be Siberia. I mean, it's this is basically it's Alcatraz in space. It, there's definitely it's of uh, a piece with Scott's sort of the Sheffield Steelworks side to to everything. The the industrialized. Well, yeah, it's it's that it's that that industrial beach at the end of Get Carter. Yes, yeah, that, yeah. That whole show, it really makes me think of that. It's also an audience killer. Oh yeah, because no one likes the northeast. No, no. I mean, it's dark. It's grim. It's 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 um you know, and it's going to continue being very dour and grim. This film. People went into this movie thinking that it was going to be another mm, aliens. Yeah. It was going to be another sci-fi action thrill ride roller coaster, mm. and it's nothing of the kind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I bet that I, I bet at this point they were thinking. God, can we bring back Vincent Ward? <laughs> I mean, they probably were when they, you know, when you see this opening, you think, "Hang on a minute, <laughs> our beloved character, a little girl from the previous film, has just been offed." But people coming to Alien Three for the the first time will know Charles Dance because of his his recent role in Game of Thrones, in which he was excellent. He's in For Your Eyes Only, yes, as a thug. Uh, do you remember Firstborn? I'm aware of it. I've mm. not seen it. Uh, I, I remember watching that as a kid growing up. He's in. Golden Child. Yes. He's excellent in Gosford Park. He's in a film you've reviewed, I'm sure. Lost Action Hero. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, he's very good in that. That came out the following year. Um, Do you think he always gives the same performance? I don't know. (laughs) Thinking about his performance in this and his performance in Lost Action Hero, in that... He's a villainous henchman who becomes self-aware. Mm. And no, I think that's a very different character. It's a very different performance. 
because Clemens is he's a he's a good sympathetic man. Mm. He's made terrible mistakes in the past, but he's paying for them, and he's aware that he's paying for them. And he was trying to do good things by looking after these inmates, by helping Ripley. Mm. Um, There's a bit of nominative determinism going on because um, clemency is mercy. Oh yes, of course. Um, but he's very good in this film. Yeah. Um, and there's someone else in this film, not the star, who is, I think, excellent in this film. He he works really well opposite Sigourney Weaver in this film. How do you think Richard E. Grant would have worked as that character? I I haven't heard. And it's it's Grant dialed down. Don't forget. I think there's. I like the fact that Dance is a slightly older man. And that he's clearly slightly weathered. He's internalised, and you, you could also you also get the sense from him that he could probably kill you with his bare hands. But so I, I do like the casting there. I struggle to see Richard E. Grant in it. It'd be a different different thing. Yeah, um, he could absolutely do it, but it would be different. And that's about as far as I'd, I'd say with that. But I like the Charles Dance performance. What about Grant now? Excellent. I mean, as this character, but Grant now playing this character. Yes, perfectly fine. No, no hesitation. But the problem is, is that you'd instantly go, oh, "It's, it's uh, Richard E. Grant." But we're so used to the Richard E. Grant performance, mm. and I've seen him play at a much lower register. Yeah, no, he could absolutely do it. And yeah. he's grown into the more um, uh, the more internal performances. He could keep more still, but he's just got he's just got the ability. I think last time we talked, we were awaiting Grant to be uh, to get an Oscar. Yes. I can't remember who won in his place. And it, I would love to have seen him got the, the big gong, but just to see him on the awards circuit being fated and loving every second of it was really great. I, it, I think it's done a lot for his position as oh, well. Yes. Because he made such a, a presence on mm. social media from that. And watching, seeing him really enjoy it and really enjoy the circuit. And there was a video I sent you where... Um, he was going through the stock cupboard at the Criterion Club. Oh, excellent. Yes. And, and they, they post these videos every so often of having someone in and they just help themselves to all this stuff. And he he was just so enthusiastic and showing such sort of love and knowledge and understanding of film. Um, I think it's... I think that... Uh, a lot of casting agents would think, yeah. want that. A lot of filmmakers going, I'd want to work with that guy. Yes. Bring absolutely. all that positivity to my project, please. As well, his skill as an actor. Well, of course, he's in Star Wars Episode Nine. Um, yes, which... just as Charles Dance is in Godzilla: King of the Monsters. <laughs> well, obviously, he's going to bring the dance, the class, classiness to it. I believe he's actually playing the human villain of the film. Oh, right. Okay, he's in Gosford Park, where he plays a. Um, it's a very small part, and he gets only one or two lines. But boy, do you believe him as someone who's been through World War One and seen all the killing he has that poise and that but have you seen Charles Dance on a, on a talk show I believe he was von Would I Lie to You oh, really <laughs> and he was exactly how you'd want him to be he yeah. was very charming and debonair yeah. and didn't take himself remotely seriously yeah that's, what I, that's exactly what I thought I think he was on um, the Graham Norton show oh. with um, uh, some Game of Thrones thing and yeah he was remarkably laid back and as you say He's got much more of a sense of humour about himself than you might think. Well, um, he's from that sort of acting tradition of you take the work seriously, you don't take yourself seriously. Yes, yeah. Which I think is a, a very admirable attitude. 
Yes. But it means also he's very good at the publicity because he's just yes. ineffably charming. You want to get this witty. big, tall, charismatic Englishman on to be witty and laid back and to be nice to everybody. He's the first Englishman we see in this film. Uh, the first of many English I actors. Was, I was just trying to remember whether or not there are any male actors in this film who aren't English. And then of course and there's, 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 there's Lance Henriksen and Dylan, mm. who's obviously... Yes. Oh, did you know that the actor who played Dylan is an ex-convict? The actual actor? Charles S. Dutton. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, my God. He got into acting in prison. Well, he... That's, not, that's a strange irony, a twist of fate for him. He is thoroughly believable in this film. Mm. So maybe he's bringing a little bit of... Uh, He's excellent in this film. Um, anyway, um, Ripley gets dragged out of the ocean, and boy, is she in a bad state. She's um, she looks like the opening credits to the Dragon uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yes, she's covered in oil. Yeah, and in fact, there are a number of early Fincher ticks in this film. Um, Fincher does prisons basically. He does gulags. In Gone Girl, marriage is a gulag. It's something to be escaped from. Facebook, the social network, oh, that yes. is a detailed description of a ground-up build of a digital gulag, a place that you do not want to go anywhere near. What other ones has he done? The Game is uh, Michael Douglas. Great film, The Game. Prison of the Mind. Exactly. Seven um, is the prison where it's a city. Fight Club is it's masculinity is a prison, or indeed the banality of, of modern existence is a, is a you, you fight to escape. Yeah, and you, you're just swapping one for another. Yeah. And um, as you say, Seven, definitely, the whole city is this... Da- in Seven, he takes all the aesthetics of Alien 3 and bolts it to a serial killer story, and he's got more experience, and the result was a massive smash hit. I took my mother to see Seven. She loved it. She loves serial killer films. I, um, I was talking to my mother recently, and I was, I was telling her about Seven, and I was being quite careful about how to describe... <laughs> The different murders. I thought, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> my my mum likes gardening and knitting and yeah. and and crime movies. Uh, how 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 much detail can I go into about the uh, the man who's forced yes. to rape a woman to death? Yes. Um, it is it is very dark seven, and it goes to some very dark places at the end. But Fincher said that when he came out of Alien Three, he failed upwards. He was all set to return to directing pop videos because he thought, crikey, that went badly. But then someone sent him the script and said, actually, you should really do this. And that's a great use of that term. And and it really worked. The um, Watching Seven in the cinema was a heck of an experience of two things at the time. One was the, the opening credits sequence, was which was a big change in how opening credits had done. I mean, um, Pink Panther films had done opening credits as great, big Broadway yeah. Uh, things. Woody Allen had gone in a totally different direction and said, no, let's put the credit cards are. But sev- the opening credits of Seven are, um, are basically you're inside um, the killer's mind. And he's basically uh, it's using things with sound and images and, and slashing the credits up and, and all of this. And then the other thing that I remember people talking about was the sound design of the film. You can hear the city in the background. The ambient noise is much more realistic in that film. Seven still stands up. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, Not for a little while. I have an unwatched Blu-ray, which I'm sure will, yeah, it will benefit from the format because um, the, the the image was specially processed. It went through silver bypass, I think, oh. to create a much richer, darker uh, color palette. Right. Um, and I know that Fincher worked with a regular sound designer 
who has the best has the best name of anyone not in a science fiction movie. He's called Ren Kleiss. Oh wow. It's an amazing That's name. straight out of Flash Gordon, isn't it? Kylo Ren. <laughs> um but he's he's a regular sound designer and he he does some DVD features where he's sort of explaining things and he's sort of weirdly quite sort of cheerful and personable. But, but you've got a really creepy name. <laughs> I'm working at uh, uh, the place I'm working at the moment. Uh, there's some guy who was on an email list. His name is um, Beat Angst. <laughs> That's his job description. Yes, believe me, I've been in some parties where I've had Beat Angst. Anyway, enough about my private life. Yeah, so Ripley looks like she's in a very poor state, oil and bugs all over her as well, which is which is not good. But Charles Dance uh, picks her up. Um, and carries her across this doom-laden landscape into a very foreboding, what looks like a refinery. And her day doesn't get any better. This is all chopped up and intercut with Brian Glover tapping into a computer and some other shots of the landscape. We're told that there's one survivor from the crash. Her name is Lieutenant Ripley. She has a companion called Hicks. And our beloved Newt Mm. gets unidentified doesn't even get the dignity of her own name and that is grim that is really harsh come on now (laughs) I saw this before I saw aliens (laughs) because Newt has a famous uh, uh, you know in geek circles they they mostly come at night Mm. mostly and the actress who plays Newt was brilliant in the role, and and I don't think she went on to do anything else afterwards. But it, it's it's just a brilliant spot on. She's very charismatic in the role. You really, she's got the vulnerability, but strength and all and all of this. Uh, but no, opening credits, dead doesn't even get a name. The planet goes into an eclipse. The sun oh, yes. disappears behind it, and uh, we will see if it returns. Uh, the sun is literally going down on this planet now that Ripley has arrived with maybe something with her. And then we cut to a chap called Dylan. Yes, Dylan, who is the appointed leader of the convicts in this prison colony. And a preacher. Mm. And do you think he looks a little bit like there's a sort of Malcolm X-y type I thing going I thought you were going to say that, yeah. Yeah, now this is not a film about race, but there's definitely a sort of charismatic leader angle to this guy. Whether this is a prison or a uh, some sort of Siberian works place where the people are just sent there and told to work and do manual labour, it's not entirely clear. And the function of the place gets even hazier towards the end of the film. But as you say, they've adopted some crazy millennial religion to help get them through the days. They are also uh, celibate. Do you believe that? Yes. I think that's very unlikely that e- even in you know in an all-male environment, uh, they've adopted celibacy. They finish their prayer, which they open with what looks very like a black power salute. They put their fists right up into the air. So I, I think this is a mishmash, and I think that's what they're going for. It's just um, they've dragged a lot of elements out of... Uh, various cultural things and slammed it into this tiny little uh, tinderbox and that's what they're, they're struggling through and uh, and they're helping get through the days there's also a barcode on the back of someone's head they all have barcodes on the backs of their heads uh, as we will later see uh, that um, 
Ripley notices that Clarence has Indeed, one. Indeed, yeah. Now, the barcode strikes me as actually a rather William Gibson thing. I don't know if that's a tiny little remnant that's made it through successive drafts. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but um, Mr. Andrews is the warden, played by Brian Glover. Yes. Who I think is like, tailor-made for like a major role in a Hollywood movie. <laughs> It's a little odd. He's he's fine. He's good. He's he's perfectly chosen, I think, for this particular role. That you need a gruff, no nonsense XPE teacher. XPE teacher, ex wrestler. Yeah. Um, to be a bastard, basically. Yeah. Yeah. With all these these this gang of um, very very eccentric, very tick ridden prisoners. They're all they're all very strange characters. We don't really get to know these prisoners very well. There are one or two... I mean, we'll talk about Pete Postlethwaite when we get to him, poor bloke. Some are, are played by obvious British character actors of, of the, the early 90s. And others others are just simply faces in the crowd. So, um, yeah, he's reassuring them and saying that there's been a survivor and, and they're not happy about this. It's upsetting their little status quo. And then we switch to Ripley. And she is about to be injected by the doctor. And that wakes her up. She grabs his hand and says, what's in it? So that moment of penetration that's heading in our direction, mm. she stops in, instantly. That's the first words of her from in this film. We will talk about her last words when we get to them. But yeah, it, um, Charles Dance is totally believable in the role as, um, as a doctor with secrets, as we shall find. And the grimness continues. He talks about lice. He talks about you'll need to shave your hair. And then he says, and you're going to need to attend to your private parts. And then she cuts him off. And I remember that at the time. Oh, my God. That was just, that's right on the edge of what you could say mm. at that stage. What do you think of Clarence's bedside manner? <laughs> I think he's a bit creepy. Is that just the way Charles Dance is playing him, though? Because he seems completely sincere mm. to me. He's, he's trying to help. He hasn't seen a woman in seven years, so he's a bit... Mm. Uh, mm. but he's doing his best and when he breaks the news to her that mm. uh, Hicks and Newt are both dead he's clearly doing it with as much delicacy and compassion as he can manage yeah yeah I think he, I mean it's in, it's in a grim situation and he's got to deliver grim news but I, I just completely buy him I think it's a, um, a nice piece of acting so yeah she's um, she's, she's fairly devastated by this hmm and it's going to upset her for some time to come. She says she's going to be, because of the coming out of the, um, the hypersleep or the cryosleep, she says she's going to be sick for a couple of weeks. So this, I know this sounds like it's a bit of a reach, but it's a bit like the case of Androzani in Doctor Who, where Davison is doomed within minutes of the opening of the episode. And it's basically a ticking clock all the way to the end. And everyone knows it's going to end badly. Going into this film for the first time, I did not expect to see where this went at the end. All the way right up to the end, I thought she's going to get out of this. Rewatching it now, you get this sense of doom throughout the whole thing. Mm. That's certainly not what you get from the rah rah razzmatazz of aliens, the gung ho, <laughs> let's go get them, boys. So, yeah, it's very bleak. It's very Soviet. Um, roadside picnic, Solaris, that sort of stuff. Stalker, yeah, yeah. very much so. Um, it's also. Um, Years later, Vincent Ward 
did finally make a Hollywood movie. He made a few movies in America, but the one sort of big-ish budget film that he was eventually able to make was What Dreams May Come. With, um, with Robin, Robin Williams, Williams no, as a uh, man who's killed in a car accident. And he goes to heaven. And heaven's lovely. It's really nice. It's like his, his dog is there from, from when he was young and it's all fields and it's, it's beautiful and it's quite cleverly CGI created. But back on Earth, his wife is so distraught by his death and she can't cope and she kills herself. Mm. And that condemns her to hell. Oh, God. But... Robert Williams decides that he he d- he doesn't want to continue this perfect existence without her, so he undertakes a journey to the underworld Ooh. to rescue her. And the visions of hell that Ward summons up are comparable to what we see in this. And it's a really it's a really beautiful film, and really beautifully designed. Uh, inevitably, who do you think plays the? Um, the, the guide through the underworld that Robert the guide Lewis. through the underworld yeah. who's the perfect person to play a guide through the underworld Morgan Freeman it's Werner Herzog <laughs> perfect Mr Cheeky yeah um, I must track that down it, it it was during that time when Robin Williams was having got a, got a reputation for being in really treacly yes and this it just sidesteps all of that uh, have you seen Always the Spielberg film? No, it's one of the two Spielberg films I haven't seen. I thought that at the cinema, and um, uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blow it for you. Yeah, you should definitely see it to um, to continue the your Spielberg. I've film. seen the um, Audrey Hepburn cameo. Yeah, expect treacle. Oh yeah, obviously. The only other one I have of his I haven't seen is the Color Purple. No, I haven't seen the Color Purple either. Actually, I'm. I must get round to that. You've seen Bridge of Spies, I take it, and um, I've seen all of the others. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Anyway, poor old Ripley heads off to the evac capsule and uh, and finds out that Newt drowned in her cryo tube. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's and, a wonder Finch doesn't kill a cat. And um, Hicks was impaled by. Well, he gets off scot free. He just gets instant death. But yeah. I think there's the inference that that it. That it was sort of spinning through the face, yeah, and that his face was destroyed, and it's like, this is, like, yeah. this is like really kicking people who liked aliens in yeah. the teeth. Say, like, oh, you like you like it when it's tough. Do you, you like like tough, violent stuff? How about this? Yeah, and I like that, and that's what caused Cameron to say it's a slap in the face because it takes. And also, it's the one reason that my brother said that he thought this was rubbish. It takes everything from the previous films, all the things that worked and that was were popular, and it kills them stone dead. And goes and takes you into a Soviet gulag, and that's what I like about. I like the audacity of that. I, I just find it strange that people think that the Alien movies aren't really grim and nasty, yeah. because that's the whole point. That the Alien is this unstoppable killing machine, and how is that light and fun? No, it's grim. It's violent. It's nasty. It's about a, a cruel, uncaring universe where mm. you've got this this monster on one side. And, uh, and a ruthless exploitative corporation on the other. This is not. Yes. You know, this isn't cheery fun time. And also, it's the nineties. I think the whole um, millennial angst thing um, is a little overblown about what happens in the nineties. I don't remember being petrified that we were all going to die in two thousand, but around the time, definitely, particularly with the rise of the X Files, 
mm. um, and talk on the news of the Millennium Bug, which eventually came to nothing. There were more and more things in, and not least Lance Henriksen in Millennium, which is an incredibly bleak series, almost unwatchable. Oh, yeah. So there was, there was this general trend of it being grungier and darker. I, th- I think part of it is not knowing where the threat was anymore. True. Because we'd had, we'd, had the, we'd had the empires, we had the Nazis, we had the Soviets, and then the Berlin Wall collapsed and the Cold War was over. And we were, we were pre-programmed for anxiety, but we didn't know where to point at to say, that's who we're supposed to be afraid of. Mm. So it was the perfect moment for the X-Files. Yeah, the threat is all around you, but it's all in the shadows. It's, yes. people, it's people secretly plotting. And the idea of the Millennium Bug, which was a thing that will, it will strike invisibly and it will destroy society in an instant. It was perfect because it was the threat that we cannot put our finger on. Mm. Because we, ha- we know we need to be afraid, we just don't know where. And think, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. And Fincher kind of addressed this in Seven. There's a famous speech between Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman where they talk about apathy being a legitimate response to the world around you. Do nothing, sit back, just be a consumer. And you're right. I mean, at the time there was no... It was um, there were wars with Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi and, uh, and stuff like that. But it was just a bit of an odd time. And in, in the pop charts it was all boy band crap and stuff like that. So I think Alien 3 was completely of a piece with its time. When was Alien... Su- suddenly slicking off 90s pop music for no reason. Yeah, so <laughs> um, oh, you, why not? I mean, I've, listened, I've got several albums by the cause. I don't know what you're complaining about. <laughs> you get it. It's, it's admission time on Cinema Limbo. But I, I think Alien 3 is, is perfectly in tune with its zeitgeist. I yeah. think... Um, am I right in thinking Alien was 79? Yes. Yeah, and then Aliens, mid-80s, 86. So I do think these are all reflected of the decades that they, um, that they were made. And Alien 3 really does get that sense of queasiness, of uh, we don't quite know where the enemy is, can't just go in with military force and win everything. Yeah, and also, and also the rise of the indie filmmaker as well. Yes, very much so. Um, coming in to a franchise property and putting their stamp on it. And these days, in 2009, you could argue that's the case, but I believe that someone like... It's not 2009. Oh, 2009. What am I talking about? 2019. Have yeah. you taken your pills today, Grandfather? <laughs> <laughs> the mind plays tricks. I'm trying to shave the decade off my own age. If you These days, if you're an indie filmmaker and you get the, the call from Lucasfilm, you can expect not to put your imprint on the film, you can expect to get a, a course in how you learn do CGI and effects, and then you'll get your film taken away from you and re-edited. And you, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. Whereas, at the very least, I think Marvel well, does, does give people a bit more latitude. Uh, yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy yeah. is a James Gunn movie. All right, and Thor Ragnarok is... is, is Taika Waititi. And um, Doctor Strange is very much a Scott Derrickson film. I don't know enough about him to, to say whether that's the case. I found that a very middle-of-the-road experience. To be honest with you. The, the visuals, I think. The, um, well, there's the, one scene the, where it goes bananas. The styling but. of it overall, I think, feels very much like the work of a horror director. Doctor Strange? Yeah. Oh, okay. I might revisit that then. Well, uh, listener, it's on Good Friday. 
Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh. The TV premiere is of Doctor, Strange. of Doctor Strange is Good Friday at 8.30 on ITV. I'll be watching the box set of Jesus of Nazareth, like a good Catholic boy. Anyway, yeah, so we find out that, that Newt is unfortunately dead, but the horror doesn't stop there. <laughs> oh, no. Well, we're nearly an hour and ten minutes into the podcast, and we're only on page two of my notes. Oh, dear. Okay, we better hit the fast-forward on this. Should we, should we do the, uh, the chopped-up edited version of this podcast in tune with the original cinematic release? Well, Alien uh, 3. Uh, Ripley goes to the morgue to examine the body. There's a line. And I do like that someone's fastened some flowers yes. onto the, the, the drawer where uh, Newt's body is. And just that one little gesture of... There's humanity here. Kindness, yeah. Mm. Yeah, there, there is. The, the scene that transpires is grim. And it's very well done. It's I, I kind of want to say it's a notorious scene, but people don't really think about this film much these days. But it's a very, very queasy scene to watch, particularly because as an Aliens fan, you would have loved Newt. And Ripley requests that an autopsy be done on, on the little girl. We get to see just her eyes coming down. So, And I think that's very deliberate, by the way. Fincher makes you connect with what's about to, um, mm. to happen. And what happens is a lot of sound design and a brilliant performance from uh, Weaver. We, we get all the horror from her, her reactions. And I, sh- I just want to say here, I think Sigourney Weaver is absolutely brilliant in this film. Yeah. Um, I went to the London Comic Con uh, with my brother and my nephew a couple of years ago, and Sigourney Weaver was there. And stupidly, we didn't get tickets to meet her or go to an autograph session or anything like that. And whilst we were surviving the melee of people at this ridiculously overbooked event, we were standing a couple of feet away from a doorway where Sigourney Weaver was doing the signing. And the door opened, and out came some security guards, and then out came Sigourney Weaver. And it takes a fair amount for my brother and I to get starstruck, but we were reduced to jelly just by the appearance of Sigourney Weaver, who is tall, obviously. Mm. But it's it is one of those really weird moments where someone you've just known um, through the cinema screen and is a huge female icon of cinema, modern cinema, appears there. And boy, did we kick ourselves that we didn't go in and um, shake her hand and just say, we love everything you do. Weaver's position in film. Um, have you seen Paul? No. Don't. Okay. Um, I, I've got a, I, I went to see that with my nephew and we both thought, oh, that's for real bloody let down she's in at the end of that but she's brought on because she's Sigourney Weaver and she's the power woman so she gets to punch someone I do recall fondly that she was in Be Kind Rewind oh, I where seen. one of the joke, well, the gimmick in that is that um, in a video mm-hmm. shop someone's like, someone's been in a, some kind of accident and as a result oh, yeah. uh, he, uh, they, he's been uh, magnetically charged and he wipes all the videos in the video shop so he and his mate have to then remake all the movies one of the movies they remake is Ghostbusters. And when the head of the movie company is played by Sigourney Weaver finds out she's... Oh, really? Stalled <laughs> down there, is, ...is furious that they're ripping off all these movies. Um, so there was that. And she's at the end of A Cabin in the Woods. Yes, she is, isn't she? So she's, she's oh, made a career out of turning up at the ends of things. And I was... I was when I was watching Alien Three. I was I was on the hint, fringe of saying that she's basically gives the same uh, performance in every film. That it's just always Sigourney Weaver. But then I thought she, it's 
difficult to believe that it's the same actress in Ghostbusters, where she's very warm, she's a cellist, she's um, she's the love interest, but she's witty, she's completely firing off uh, Peter Venkman, and then she becomes possessed at the end, and you just think it's, it's completely two different performances. Well, she's a stage actor, so she's got all that stage training, so she can flip between, you know, that kind of thing quite easily. Yeah. And then she was I think one of the few people to be Oscar nominated for two different roles in the same year. Really? In 80... She was Oscar nominated for Aliens. Okay. And then in 88, Best Actress for Gorillas in the Mist. Oh, right, yeah. Best Supporting Actress for Working Girl. That's a good year. <laughs> and she's terrific yeah, in Working yeah. Girl. I, have, I must see Working Girl. I haven't seen it. Do you know who won... Best Actress the Year of Alien 3? Uh, what would have been for 1991? I... I'll be so impressed if you get this. I think that would be... Uh, would it be... <laughs> Jodie Foster? No. Nope. Oh, damn! But very near. Um, Emma Thompson for Howard's End. Oh, yeah. Which is a very conservative um, choice. I like Howard's End an awful lot. I think I like the Merchant films, and I like Emma Thompson to a certain extent. But in no way... Uh, is she giving a better performance than Sigourney Weaver in Alien 3? Um, well, I mean, at the previous year, they'd given Best Picture Director, Actor, Actress, Adapted Screenplay to Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, and I think that's a good choice. And it's only the third film to, to do the five. Mm. Um, so it, I, maybe it was a response to that, that they were leaning a bit more conservatively. I, I, I can because see. I think Best Picture that year was Dancers with Wolves mm. as well, which is a, it's actually not bad. Mm. I don't think it's aged... Mm. that well but it's it's an honest and sincere film that's trying to be uh, uh, you know open-minded yeah and a heck of an achievement yeah all. for a direct for, for a director who, with no experience and say I, I want to make this movie you know, okay go and make your movie then yes Kevin Costner says, oh I've, I've brought back a film that's a masterpiece by accident yeah <laughs> uh, I think if Kevin Costner hadn't made Waterworld and gone and the production had gone out of control he would be he would have um been much more highly regarded. If he'd just made Dances with Wolves and he'd not directed again. Oh, well, that Because his be next film was yeah. The Postman. He's excellent in JFK. He's a great actor. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's actually, in fairness, he's quite good in Man of Steel. As yes, he is. Father. I agree. Uh, the character's appallingly written because they completely misunderstand what he's supposed to be doing. But he's perfect for that because you want, you want the, the traditional... Apple pie all, American. Apple pie all-American man. Glenn Ford originally now who could be better than Absolutely. Kevin Costner mm. and he's he's exactly right it's just he's you know, got the cinema background he's the guy who tried to bring the gunman who shot JFK to justice so he's got that in the bank so you believe him as as absolutely a piece of Central Americana he's, yeah he's he's the ideal of the Midwestern yeah. American Glenn Ford had all the westerns in the back in, in his back catalogue and the well, Costner's uh, uh, got westerns in his back. That's very well. true. Because he, I mean, the, two of his three films as director were westerns. He's acting in another western just now. Yes, he's, he does them uh, all the time. Uh, Silverado, the only film in which um, one of two films actually in which John Cleese plays a wild west sheriff. <laughs> and the other is uh, American Tale: Five Goes West. <sighs> this is why you're listening to Cinema Limbo, folks. It's for the detail like that. Anyway, before we spend ten hours on Alien Three, nearly at the bottom of page two, let's crack on. Newt unfortunately gets chopped up, and it's because we know why Ripley wants this 
to be done. And the Doctor finds nothing, and Ripley makes the mistake of breathing a sigh of relief, but requesting that the bodies be incinerated. And there's a bit of skullduggery as to why why are you requesting this? The Doctor's very suspicious. Mm. And we're, we're, we're given, in what I believe is an added scene into this edition, um, very good reason to be on Ripley's side, which is they drag in an oxen from uh, outside the uh, refinery. And the oxen's dead. And uh, that's not good if you've seen films like this before. No, because things grow in dead creatures. And I had to look very carefully at the frame, but at the end of the scene where they drag the oxen in, there's a guy who picks up yeah. an alien... The uh, it's, it's the skin. The face hugger. Yeah, so... Yeah, and it's, and it's so like... Like, Michael Fett's, yeah, what's this? Yeah, it's like someone's left a sock there. <laughs> what's... You've been leaving your underpants lying around again. Now, mate, that's an alien face hugger, that is. Yeah, it's... Um... I mean, it's a wonder he doesn't just completely freak out, but it's an audience tell. I mean, what he should have done is gone, snuck up behind his mate and gone, yeah. Woo! Oi! Well, it's that old joke, isn't it, about if you go on the International Space Station, why does no one turn up in a monster costume? And when, when the door opens onto the docking hatch, they go, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's what I'd do. So Hicks and Newt get incinerated in a very moving scene. Notice that they are, they, it looks like they're mummified, they're strapped up, and their arms are not thrown out in some sort of triumphalist pose. No, they're, um, they're tied across their chest. Yes. Well, that, I, I assume that was, that's, that's realistic. Mm. They would be across the chest rather than by the side. Yeah. But there is, that's going to be mirrored at the end with what happens to Ripley. Mm. And detail in this film is very, very good. This is not a film that's all over the road. There, there, there are specific moments which are paid off, such as that one down the line. Um, the director gets a bit trigger-happy stylistically in the funeral sequence. We get some overlapping faces and close-up of, um, of Ripley. Do you think in this film there are ra- there's rather a lot of people looking directly at the camera? Did you notice that at all? Not particularly, no. I started to notice that a, a bit... Um, I took a couple of shots as we go along. I might, might run them by you, but... Um, uh, Brian Glover tries to give a, uh, a moving sermon, fails, Dylan takes over. I, I like that because Andrews is, he, he wants to do the right thing. He's a civil servant and he thinks, you know, these are just innocent people. They deserve the dignity of a funeral. And he's just reading it out from his little book. And he's, he's not doing that well. He's not commanding anyone's respect through this. Because he's he, he doesn't he's not respected in terms of his spiritual leadership. Mm. He's respected as being the one in charge of the facility. Yes. Yeah. So you... Dylan steps forward mm. and delivers his sermon, and that's the one that really counts. And I have some of the lines written down. Within each seed is the promise of a flower, and within each death is the promise of new life. Exactly. And, and, the, and the whole sequence is cross-cut with the new alien being hatched out of the body of the dead ox. Yep, very nicely done. And uh, a little CGI alien scampering off. And a little nosebleed from Ripley. And at the time, I never understood that. I, I, 
and it took me a long time to realise that actually it's the first sign that Ripley's been impregnated, mm. that it's uh, her heart's going like the clappers, and um, and it's it's a, the, the the audience is slowly tipped off. All is not well with Ripley. Mm. The um, the CGI alien was actually added in the, um, mm. the for the for the the cut because the original shot uh, they actually used. Uh, a dog. I've got a picture of the dog right here. Yeah. It looks like rubbish. like a dog in an alien costume. It yes. looks it looks like a, like like he's wearing a novelty costume that someone's bought him for like taking their dog to a fancy dress party. There's a prank video on YouTube of someone who's got their dog dressed up in a spider outfit, and they um, they they leave the dog outside um, a public lift, and um, and it's uh, late at night. And this poor bloke comes down in the lift carrying lots of shopping. The door's open. There's a bloody six-foot spider standing there that's following and running after him and all of this. And he goes absolutely mad. So I, I feel his pain. The dog idea is a very bad idea. I would have kicked that dog in the face. Well, I'm not going to champion uh, animal cruelty, folks. Well, but it's a, it's a dirty great <laughs> spider. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I would have even got that far. I think I probably would have had a heart attack or a, a coronary. You're right about the CGI, and also we don't need to see it scampering away. We know what's going on. We get the close-ups of the thing in, in its viscera and its gore yeah. looking at the camera. We, we just need the, the, the human, the, the, the model of it. We don't need to see the CGI of it. But um, it's, it's, it's good CGI because it's quick, it's at a distance. Mm. Um, I don't mind that, that just punctuation at the end. Okay, I, I'll, I can live with that. Ripley has a shower, and um, it's. I've got a little bit of a problem with um, Ripley loses her clothes in the first examination with um, with Clemency. She comes off the gurney, stands in front of him, and, and says, "Yeah, could you get me some proper clothes, please?" And then we see her here because the, what the film is doing is it's slowly stripping everything away from Ripley. So we've got her friends killed off, we've got her hair shaved off, and then soon her biology is going to start rebelling big time. This is basically a study of, in my opinion, to be pretentious, femininity in crisis. You are systematically destroying everything that makes up the woman. And she nevertheless manages to triumph at the end. The idea of her being doomed right from the start and what happens at the end of the film makes me think these days that actually this is a film about uh, someone fighting a terminal illness and embracing and owning it at the end and the heroism of what Ripley does is to stop that illness being inflicted on anyone else I think it's quite interesting nowadays when people go on marches and walks like your good self against um, cancer and and various other diseases, Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, to see the scene right at the end where Dylan is confronts the alien, and he's going, "Is that all you've got?" And he's fighting it off, and he's shouting, he's jeering at it. And if you watch it in with that sort of angle to it, it becomes very powerful. And Ripley goes, "No, I'm going to embrace the the whole thing and um, and stop it being, um, you know, uh, inflicted on anyone else." This film lends itself to readings, aliens doesn't really it's vietnam in space that's all you get but there is there's more juice to this film it's very grim and it's very dour but it's just a really good talking point she takes a shower dylan is in the canteen and um people are picking on 
poor old Paul McGann. Yeah, Gollick's not popular. He's not. I thought he was called Garlic at the start. But... No, Gollick. Yeah, Garlic. And, uh, yeah, people don't like him. He's a weirdo. I mean, they're all weirdos. They're in a, mm. they're in a prison colony. And actually, as, uh, as Ripley sits down with Dylan to eat, she thanks him for uh, his words during the uh, ceremony. And he's, he's mm. keeping his sister. You don't want to know me, lady, because I'm a rapist and murderer of women. And boy, do you believe him. Yeah. And there's a moment. And she says, well, then I must make you very nervous. Mm. And then she just sits down opposite, with him, opposite him and starts eating. You can't intimidate her. Yeah, she wins that one. I like it where he says, got any faith? And she goes, not much. She's seen the full horror of what's yeah. out there. Particularly now, post-news. And then there's a scene with Charles Dance where he basically explains the, the faith, the religion, that it's a hodgepodge of millennial apocalypse apocalypse nonsense. And what happens in this scene is very interesting because it's unique for this particular trilogy. Charles Dance avoids being answering the question, how did you get here? He doesn't want to talk about that. And he asks her a question about Newt. Why, why did you want the autopsy? She equally evades the question by asking, are you attracted to me? Mm. And it's the first time that the character has used sexuality to get what she wants. So we've got a Ripley who loses her clothes for the first time in the first scene with Charles Dance. Now we've got a Ripley who's actually a woman and is looking for human contact but in this instance, she's using that moment to avoid asking, avoid talking about the alien. Well, I don't want to tell you that there's a huge crazy monster going out there. Why don't you say, are you attracted to me? Because she knows that this guy hasn't seen a woman in 200 years. But at the same time, she's desperate for human contact. She's got no friends. She's, mm. in, she's grieving. She's thoroughly sick and infected with God knows what. It's a bit of a soapy scene. Would you agree? I, I think it's, it opens up different areas of the character. Mm. As you say, it's, it's the only time that Ripley has ever used her sexuality to gain anything. I mean, in, in the first film, originally, Ripley was uh, male in the script. Mm. In the second film, the emphasis on, is on her being a mother mm. because of the subplot about her daughter having died of old age and uh, uh, engaging Newt as a surrogate. So we've never... It's, it's like the whole sort of Madonna-Whore mm. uh, dichotomy. We've never actually seen her as a... a sexual figure. As, as a sexual woman with her own... Um, Desires. Yeah. Uh, not quite what I'm reaching for, but sort of her own self-possessedness. Yeah. In Clemens, I think he's, he's arguably the nicest character in any of the alien movies, with the exception of Bishop, who mm. is a robot. Mm. Yes. Hicks being a marine, gruff, but a reliable. De a, a decent person. Yeah. But but as for human, Clem Clemens is very human. Yeah. And they're clearly attracted to each other. Before they decide to cement that, we get an introduction to tunnels. Yeah. And we get a character singing uh, in the year 2525, which is a song about dystopian futures <laughs> I didn't pick up on that yeah it's I've got a book called um, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die which is a chronicle of the 50 most depressing songs ever written and it's in there because it's about the the appalling future this song predicts of uh, Orwellian science gone nightmarishly wrong and 
and it was a big hit when it came out because obviously people don't know what they like and so you have this guy sing <laughs> so you have this guy singing it as he's scraping crap off the inside of a tunnel. Jeremy, why are you reading books like that and offloading your woodhouse onto me? You need to read more light comedies. Oh, it's a very funny book. Okay. It describes... I'm sure it is. Actually. I think it's a, it describes one Celine Dion song as like running on a treadmill or being whipped with bog. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to disagree with that. If, if, if she'd lived in the 1920s, they could have used her music to, <laughs> to end World War One by blasting it at the Germans until they all topped themselves. Oh, I see. So this, it's an excuse for the writers to be hyperbolic. Yeah, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of snark in there. Yeah. But also there's a lot of really obscure stuff that they go through. So it's quite an interesting sort of trip through musical history as well. well as I certainly so. didn't pick up on what he was singing. He, uh, this it's, is the... it's it's barely singing. Yeah, it's sort of gravel, gravelly screaming. Well, this is the point in the film where the sort of the its obligations to be a monster movie are intruding onto the the uh, the plot. Um, onto, onto the onto the rest of the movie, which is a meditation about death. Yes, it's about <laughs> grief and um, and. and doom and all of that but no we want to have some monstery fun so a guy sticks his head in a hole and gets a bitten off basically and staggers around falls into some fans oh, did, actually did you recognise the actor I can't remember the character's name I, I can't know um, it's Christopher Fairbank oh I'm sure because it's Moxie from Alfina's own pet <laughs> I didn't take a shot of him I should have done I took a shot of the darkness of the alien but no, I didn't. It's, I have to say, the whole monstery stuff in, in this film is not great. It's very bog standard. and um, It's not where Finch's interest no, lies. he's just not interested in it. He has said that he's definitely not interested in doing anything with Marvel or superhero stuff. And you can sense that it's not his natural... And yet, he has spent absolutely ages working on a sequel to World War Z. Well, you see, I don't... Underst- I mean, World War Z is fine as a, a, a book, but it didn't work as a film. Um, no. he's also a very anti-genre he he doesn't like um, a rule book uh, so it's a, it's a mystery to me why he's headed towards World War Z there's something in it that that has that has caught his imagination um, you've read the book yeah um, there was a script that was written for an earlier version of the film the script was by J. Michael Straczynski oh right and it was a very clever adaptation of the book because the book is just a long series of interviews it is a tricky one yeah with the survivors of the zombie war 10 years later so the soldiers civilians witnesses politicians all kinds of people building up this sort of patchwork history of the zombie Mm. war and he came up with a way of turning this into a coherent narrative and it's really clever it's really good and it feels much more like a 70s conspiracy movie um, I think they call it epistolary novels. Epistolic, yeah. yeah. Like Dracula. Yes. Um, and then that got completely ruined for the film, which turned it into um, a... Brad Pitt versus a, a Dead Brad Pitt zombie movie. But it's a zombie movie that doesn't have a single drop of blood in it, and I thought it was... My sister, my oldest sister, went to see it and um, uncharacteristically texted me and said it was absolutely terrible, and they walked out. It is terrible. Mm. I saw it with a bunch of people from my book group, all right. Because one of the first books I chose when I joined was World War Z, mm. and a lot of them said, "I'm not sure about reading a horror novel." I would have been very impressed, and I, that would have made me want to stay with the group. By the way, and everyone who read it said that was great, excellent. A friend of mine who who really doesn't like horror at all and gets quite squeamish thought no, that was terrific. That was such a such a really great idea, and you get to see the whole world of it. And I thought, 
Mission accomplished. Thank you for trusting My me. work is done. And they went to see the movie, and they all loved it apart from me. And I thought, <laughs> well, you've got a bit of cinema taste. Anyway, so that guy gets his head bitten off. And uh, it amused me. The, the idea of pillow talk between Ripley and Clements is, um, are you a prisoner? Why do you have a barcode on your neck? And why did you ask for the child to be cremated? That's pretty high class, you know, post-coital chit-chat. But unfortunately, they get a call. One of the prisoners has been diced. And there's Fincher holds the camera on, on Weaver's face because she knows that this is not good, that there could possibly be something running around in the darkness out there. Clements goes to investigate. They are, they're able to identify him by his boot. <laughs> yes. Because there's nothing left of him from what fell in the fan. Which I think is quite amusing. And the, the epitaph one of the others give him is, he was a wanker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should be so lucky to get that on my gravestone, I think. Anyway... Um, it could be arranged. Yeah, thank you for that, yes. Yeah, so they... The, the plot is... is is thickening. Ripley has a, a two shot with Clements, him oh, on the yes, left hand side. That's a beautiful screen. shot. The two of them in yes. silhouette against the light of the face background. to face. And it's going to be reflected a couple of times else in the film. I, I don't know whether he's he's doing a conscious thing there. I suspect he probably is, actually. Finch is pretty much on the ball with this sort of detail. But so far, there's been no action. This has all been very grim. We've seen beloved characters get killed. We've got a character who's possibly got a death sentence hanging overhead. This is not uh, Marines in Space. No. Which led to the really quite tough reviews on this film. Brian Glover is the one who mentions aliens for the first time. He says she was part of a combat unit that came to grief. And as a, as a sort of fanboy geeky, my heart leapt at that moment, going, ah, oh, yes, that's a reference to a film I've seen. I like that. And Ripley goes looking for some information. And what follows is brilliant. Bringing back Bishop. Yes, everything about this is so well done. The design, the performances, the whole hacking into his head to get him to, to reboot him up, and the news that he brings, which is confirmation that there was something that followed them down in the craft. I think he says something like, it is here. She also has to deal with another desecrated body. Bishop is, a, is one of her friends, who's now just a, a hunk of goo and... Well, in fairness, he was like that at the end of the last film. That's true, yes. But, you know, manhandling his corpse around yeah. the place and, and all of this. By the way, um, in passing, people complain about the Numi Rapace character being killed off unceremoniously in Alien Covenant. That's sort of a piece with Alien 3. That's the same sort of grimness. Yeah, but she was the lead. Well, that's true. But I think, and also I, I suspect that Numi kind of went, I'm not doing this again. Maybe. That's my hunter at that. I'd like, I, I don't have any evidence for it, but I don't think that she thought. Mm. Anyway, so Ripley does this rebooting of, um, of Bishop and gets into something rather inevitable, which is that a bunch of the prisoners who are a bit randy decide to try it on with her. And... Did you, as I did, think that the unlikely saviour was going to be Charles Dance in this scene? No. No? Oh. It never really occurred to me. Oh, I'm sorry. But um, inst instead it's Dylan. It is. Who uh, says, you you take off, I'm going to teach these these sons of bitches some, uh, yeah. <laughs> a, a lesson on, uh, on, on something or other. And he's got a big pipe. 
that is going to beat the shit out of him. And at this stage, it would not be a surprise if Fincher held the shot and we actually saw all of that. Yeah. Because all bets are off and we've got a filmmaker who's going to show us the, the grim dark. Meanwhile, a, a, a Boggs, Rain and um, Golic have gone into the tunnels mm. on a bit of maintenance work and they're arguing about uh, which swear words are appropriate. It's all, it's all right to say shit. That's not against God. There is humour in this film. Yeah. It's it's not completely um, po-faced. There's a great punchline to another scene which I'll get to, which I really loved. Okay. Um, but I like that it's, it's, again, it's going into the kind of religious iconography because they have candles yes. lighting the this tunnel along Got the perimeter. And uh, Boggs and Reigns are attacked by the alien and mangles them and Golic gets a face full of blood and scarpers back to the... Uh, the rest of the facility. He does, yes. He does. He get scarred as well, because I think later on in, in the his in, brain, in the refer- well, obviously in the brain. But he, he, some of the shots of him look like they're heading in. A, he's now looking like a bit of an alien himself. Bishop also had given Ripley a, a useful piece of information, which is I liked when it comes to the detail of the film, which is how do Wayland Yutani? How did the network? know about all of this and it's because the ship has been emailing back reports all the way from the planet and they email the scan of, that Ripley does of herself later on so they are basically already aware of what's going on with this situation the line that Bishop comes out with is it was with us all the way wonderful mm. stuff and that that Bishop that's all animatronics yes yeah it's Which, um, it it I mean, it is supposed to be a robot, so that kind of is short circuits any criticism that it doesn't look realistic enough. But it looks really good mm. with Lance Henriksen talking through a filter to sort of convey the mangled vocal facility. These days, they'd make a big song and dance if they did it physically, instead of giving it to Frame Frame Store uh, to getting them to render it in CGI. If they did it practically they'd make that a publicity point. Mm. That's that's where we're at, folks. Anyway, uh, Ripley heads back to the, the uh, uh, refer, uh, refinery. The refinery and, um, and suddenly we get the backstory for Charles Dance. Well, we, before you do that, there's, there's a couple of extra bits added for the extended version, which is Golic alone oh. in the cafeteria eating covered in blood oh yes and someone yeah. one of the others comes in with a big pile of plates sees him drops the huge pile of plates and got it just looks over and smiles hello and then uh, the... and then, and then they have the scene where got he's still eating and then the camera pans up and we see aaron andrews clemens and dylan all creeping up yeah. behind him <laughs> and they bag him playing grandmother's footsteps and then grabbing him yeah and then they get him into they they lock him down and handcuff him to a bed and basically he says you're all going to die because he's seen the full horror of it. Yeah, he's seen the dragon. And the the for, for plot reasons, his mind has snapped, and that's obviously going to come into play later on. That he's just completely off off the rails. So um, Charles Dance was apparently secretly addicted to morphine, and made a few medical errors, and got himself incarcerated in um, in fury. Nobody else would employ me. Is uh, is why he says he stayed. Well, he he's a, well he wasn't just a morphine addict. He worked a double shift, then was dragged back into hospital 
mm. after there'd been some sort of refinery disaster, and he prescribed the wrong level of painkiller. Uh-huh. So it's like thing upon thing upon thing. But he's not a bad man. He's just no, made he's, mistakes. He's made mistakes and he's paying for them. Yeah. And he's aware that he's paying for them. But I find that his explanation of why he stays there as nobody else would employ me is is a bit thin. I think that could have done with some, some work. He's got no, no friends, family or anything like that to go back back to. Everything is mm. controlled by the company. Mm. Yeah. They don't want people who aren't reliable. They don't want people who might be disloyal. Yeah, and, and just shipping, he is shipping them off to some gulag somewhere. Go be a doctor over there. If you fuck mm. up, who cares? The arse end of the universe, as, as uh, Ripley calls it later on. There's something going on with Boots in this film. We've already seen one, as you mentioned. There's another weird shot that happens when we, we, we see Ripley sitting on the gurney and, the, and Charles dances Boots behind the curtain. Mm. And the introduction of the alien that's going to come in a minute is, is all footwork. I'm sure there's something that I've read about um, Finch's use of that or, or something. And not that I can unpack it very well. Um, there's more looks to the, directly to the camera. Ripley. Oh, I see what you mean. Well, Clemens, yeah. he's looking just off camera. There is. There are always just off the camera, but it's almost point blank in. I mean, I'm I'm currently um, researching Exorcist Two oh. for an upcoming episode, listener. You have that to look forward to, um, and I'm yet to choose who's going to watch it with me. Don't look at me. <laughs> I sat through we'll Hudson Hawk and see how well the rest of us I've done my penance there is a, there is a bit where um, Richard Burton saying oh I saw what happened to that girl and it, it was horrible just horrible and as he's saying that he's looking straight down the barrel of the camera saying horrible horrible and thought yes I know I've already seen the rest of this film I've seen the bit where you ride around on the back of a locust, Richard Burton. Really? It's fucking terrible. I'm gonna Spoiler. Look, I'm going to look forward to this podcast. So they have a bit of a, a, a chin wag, and unfortunately a shadow appears behind Clements. And, and Gollick's going crazy. Gollick's going bananas. And Charles Dance, or at least his stuntman... If you can see, that's Charles Dance. I'm not sure that is Charles Dance. I think he's going a bit. There's a very quick shot of him being uh, head clamped by the alien and um, uh, eaten alive or whatever. Yeah. And then we get the famous shot of of Ripley um, and the alien. And the reason that this is a really good shot is that it's on the poster. It was all over the marketing at the time, and the the augmenter think, how the hell is she going to get out of that? And the reason that the alien does move away from her is very clever because, of course, it knows that it's, she is carrying an alien embryo. I have to say some of the shots of the alien approaching Ripley are very poorly rendered, composited, yeah, whatever the technique is. It's not, not brilliant. Weaver's performance is, is brilliant, though. She then launches into a running scene, which again was all over the trailers. And it's intercut with another... Uh, the, the recurring line from Andrews is, "This is rumor control. Yes. Here are the facts. Bureaucracy." And uh, oh yes, and Paul McGann, by the way, calls the alien magnificent. There's um, he's he will still change the beds in that scene, and the alien didn't eat him, which is a little bit of a plot hole. Um, Ripley bursts into the the meeting in the the cafeteria, screaming, "It's here!" Basically, 
And of course, Brian Glover goes, what the hell are you talking about? You're an idiot. Stop winding up my men. Get this foolish woman back to the infirmary. And very satisfyingly gets eaten alive. <laughs> He's, well, it, the alien drops straight down out of the ceiling, grabs him, pulls him up in the air. There's a, a brief moment, and then just a huge pool of blood comes out. Yes. Followed after a tiny break by the squash ball that he fidgets with all the time. Yes. Uh, silence for a moment, and then Morse says, Fuck! <laughs> It's wonderful. That's the punchline I loved. Yes. Because it's what you would say. And then we cut to the next scene, and it's much later in the in the dining area, and someone's mopping the floor, <laughs> looking very nervously up at the ceiling. Absolutely. So there's spots of humour in this film. It's it's wonderfully done. And that's the sort of film... You know, it, that's when it's catching fire, the film. No, it's, you know, the individual scenes, those are really well done. Mm. And then, of course, they realise that the apocalypse is upon them, big time. We are now 70 minutes into this film and little John from Robin of Sherwood appears. Clive Mantle from Casualty. Yes, yes. Good old Clive Mantle. Fro- uh, Frankenstein's monster from the Power Gen adverts. Oh, I didn't know that. That must be his finest moment. And they ask a really good question, the prisoners, because they say, why don't we just give, give the, this alien Ripley? Why don't we just feed her to it? Because it's, it's, it's just a monster. It'll kill them all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she goes, sounds good to me which gives a slight hint that she's got a bit of a death wish here. She she is she's feeling sick, but she doesn't know the full horror quite yet. Mm. And at this point, where everyone knows the alien is real, Ripley knows it's definitely real, Charles Dance is dead, the film shifts straight into be- a movie uh, monster mash. So we're talking maps of the tunnels being consulted, yeah. how are we going to fight this without any weapons, which is the USP of this film. As the um, as as Andrew says, we don't have any weapons here. We're on the honor system, <laughs> and and it's it's a little bit of a stretch to say they don't have weapons because yeah they don't have you know the guns that Cameron I mean, would got, rock out. They've got pipes and, and cigarettes and candles and a steel cage and molten lead and tunnels. And the thing is that as we've seen in the past, traditional weapons aren't actually very useful against the xenomorph. Because just shooting one in the head won't it's, get you very far. No, because it will just bleed on you, and then that will be the end of you as mm. your face melts away. And it will then melt through the, the entire ship and the hull and kill everybody. Well, fortunately, they're not in space. No, but uh, in here, God knows what it would melt through. So they come up with this plan to use the nuclear dump mm. uh, site. Uh, use use the fire to force it to uh, hide in a uh, containment uh, cage. It's a, it's a cage with six foot steel walls basically and even that I thought, I, th- I was thinking do I believe that? I, I do now because it would have to be injured to melt its way out with its acid blood. It's you know, it's a, it, I think it's a treading water thing. What it does do though is that it starts to give Pete Postlethwaite, poor bloke some lines finally after about 70 minutes See, of the now, film now that the cast starting to be thinned out yeah so Ripley starts asking him why is everyone calling that guard 85 and they go oh we, oh, it's, we it's, it's his IQ yeah, yeah but they, they snuck a look at his personnel file when he first arrived yeah so I 85 is on the lower end of the average uh, and they they don't call him that until after Andrews has been killed as well because they have, they respect Andrews mm. as the man in charge. Because Andrews treats them all 
reasonably. Yes. Yes. They want to needle this guy and they know they're going to get a reaction out of him. They know they can get away with it. Yeah. It's just character stuff. And um, and Pete Postlethwaite is great. He gets more lines in this film than he does in um, Inception where he just gets paid to be... Uh, He's not in Inception, is he? He is, yeah. He's the father. Oh, yeah. He's the, the elderly father with the... the that, um, that was his last film, wasn't mm, it? Yeah, he looks very poorly in, in Inception. Yeah. Um, he's obviously in Jurassic Park, The Lost World. He's excellent in The Lost World. I think there was one review that said that he's the only person who is acting opposite dinosaurs. Everyone else is acting in a movie opposite dinosaurs. That's a good point, yeah. Do you just believe that he's... He's he's like really there with the dinosaurs, whereas everyone else is just and it's like that's got Julianne Moore in it, and she's great, but she's really phoning it in in the Lost mm. World. Mm. Yeah, it goes off the rails in that film. I think not a good film. How different is Ralph Brown in this from his performance in Whipple and I? Because well, you, it's impossible to believe it's the same actor. It, it, I completely agree to the extent that I'm. I mean, obviously he's getting cast because of Withman and I, but when he walked into the room on day one of Alien, they must have gone, really? You played um, Danny in, in Withnail and I? And did the same year that this came out, didn't Wayne's World 2 came out, where he's basically playing Danny again? I, I, I haven't seen beat, the whole of Wayne's World. I had World to beat them to death with their own shoes. Yeah, it must be exactly that. It's, uh, he's, he is playing yeah. the same character, and it's very explicitly. Um, but it's, it's a totally different character. He looks, sounds physically totally different in every way but it's really just a wig yeah we've, and that's we've, and performance and we've that's talked before about how with men and i has a huge uh, impact on not only culture but also you know the the, the fans in the filmmaking community who went yeah. oh my god i want a bit of that in my film um so but yeah you, but you, you see how versatile ralph brown is yes and what the the, the the scale of his his talent is and years later he's got to go off and be in star wars yes absolutely that's a good character actor for you. Um, so they're uh, sort of busy mopping down this tunnel with uh, the jet fuel or whatever it is that they found. Yeah, 80, eighty-five is desperately trying to maintain some kind of authority by giving them signals, but um, they're in the middle of this where the alien again attacks, attacks, bites out of someone's face as, and a little. Um, uh, it looks like a, a, like a, a like fuse a, or a cigarette. A, a flash, a flash flare. Yeah, one of those road flares. Uh, it drops in out in mm. mega slow motion, and that's a, that's a real Fincher. Yes, style, uh, style quote. Very very slowly until it just touches the, spark? the floor, and then boom, boom, and the whole place goes up like an inferno. Uh, hence, apocalypse, fire everywhere. I mean, it goes really crazy and dangerous. And um, we this gives Dylan an opportunity to show that uh, he's constantly looking out for the other guys. I've got to get my guys out of there, he, yeah. he's saying. He's, he's full of humanity. Um, the stuntmen have a good time jumping everywhere, uh, running around with flames on them. It's a bit incoherent, all of this. You're not really too sure, A, who is everybody? And B, where are we? But they do manage to actually get the alien trapped do. in the um, the containment centre, even though someone else is trapped inside there, and they hear him screaming. Very nice. Until he stops. I enjoyed that. <laughs> and we are at this stage, one hour twenty one minutes into the film, with about another fifty five minutes to go, and the film is basically finished. 
we have trapped yeah. the alien. That's, I, that's I, it. So I've written here, movie over? Yes. Yeah. So... Well, I do like the shot at the end of the sequence where um, a, a, they have a bucket that just then just fractures under, yes. the heat, under the heat change and the temperature change because that then links forward. Yes, subliminally that's telling you that a sudden flash of cold water over something very hot is going to crack it. Yeah. Which uh, is... It's, it's, it's all yeah, folks, Alien 3 is not the total mishmash that no, you might think. It's, no, it's, it's not a fun action movie. No, but there there is a design there. But, yeah, it's... Uh, that's in all for you, folks, you see. So, yeah, unfortunately, it's got to go through the basic plot mechanics to get that thing out of there somehow and for it to go on a yeah. murder spree. And guess what? Uh, Paul McGann comes to the fore once again. He's bonkers. And Danny Webb, is it? Yep, who plays um, Morse. Makes the biggest mistake in, in the film. He plays Morse. Oh, of course. The character's <laughs> called Morse, not Inspector Morse. Inspector Morse, yeah. <laughs> John Thor in Alien 3. Yeah, he makes the biggest mistake Yeah, why in not film. John Thor in Alien 3? Yeah, he would have been good as Clemens. He could have. Um, I was thinking more Andrews. Yes, he could have done that. Yeah, brought some steel to it. Actually, you could just have the whole cast of Alfina Zane play. You've already got one. Yeah, yeah. you've got a Jimmy Nail as Clemens. <laughs> Jimmy Nail would really have fitted into this film actually with his face. Yeah. His broken boxer's nose. Danny Webb um, makes the biggest mistake of the film, which is to free Golic. And. Because Golic knows where they get where to get the cigarettes from. Because seeded earlier, there are there are these defunct cigarette machines that Golic can hotwire. And Golic's last line in that scene is "No more cigarettes for you." It all ties together. Yeah, it all ties together. And so off Golic goes because we know obviously he's going to release the alien. Um, there's some computery stuff uh, next because they contact the network and they say we've trapped the xenomorph. And trolling Cameron once again, <laughs> the line is permission to terminate. Oh. So they must know that Cameron's sitting there seething with abject fury that all his characters have been killed off. And now we're in the land of you know terror and, and real doom. And, and suddenly his key word, um, in fact, Terminator 2, of course, the year before is now on the screen. Permission denied is what the network say. No, don't kill it. And then Gollick goes off and releases the alien. And I was quite surprised by this scene because it is not splattertastic. No, he just walks into the darkness and there's silence and then the alien runs out. Yep. And the film does do some splatter, most satisfyingly later on. But But it, it knows when it knows when to keep mm. its powder dry. It just you know that it's it's obviously going to kill Golic. We don't need to know that. Just have that moment of silence. And then the alien moving away. Yeah. And that's all. We, we've got all the information. We are adults. There is a bit earlier that I think this, when um, Dylan's having a, another sermon for those killed during the, the fire attack, and uh, 85, I'm just going to call him 85, yeah. he's standing to one side and um, Ripley asks him, Are you, you the, not the religious type then? He says, Shit, no, I've got a job. <laughs> and I, I like the relationship because. 85 is an, he's absolutely a company man. Yes. He's a yes, yes man. Definitely. But he's still he's, he's helping Ripley send the message. He helps capture the creature because he's he's not he's not completely stupid. We hear of his family. He's got yeah, he's got a family back home. So he wants to eventually somehow get off this rock. Mm. Um but 
a little bit like what's his name in Aliens. He will vote himself, and he will vote the company over other people. Yes, the you mean the the corporate the Paul Reiser guy. Yeah, yeah. Who uh, is? Yeah, I know who you mean. It's definitely of a piece with that character, but this one is is eventually a good guy. Yeah, he's there's there's more shade to him, and it's Ralph Brown. You know, it, it, he, he's there's just something about his face that is a little bit more lovable. Ripley has started coughing. Oh well, that means terminal illness. Definitely in in um, in these in a, films. In a, in a movie, it means if you have a, if you have, if you cough yes. at any time, you have cancer. Unfortunately, or, and what what is an alien that's this tumor-like thing growing inside you? What is it if not cancer? I mean, that's uh, again, it, that's definitely a reading that you can apply apply to all this. She then goes for a scan. She goes to the evac and. She gets some the terrible news, and it's they used MRI scans to do this. It's unsettlingly believable. Foreign tissue type is what it detects. Mm. She knows now she's got a death sentence, and even at this stage, you're still thinking, "I wonder how this is going to work out. How is Ripley going to get rescued from this terribly grim scenario? Yeah, how 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 is our hero going to get out yeah. of this? You are programmed to think that." What's the positive resolution here? How is Ripley going to triumph? It's like, I mean, we've got, as of this recording, Avengers Endgame is coming up in a couple of weeks. And at the end of Infinity War, you have you seen Infinity War, by the yes, way? Yes, I have. Uh, Spider-Man dies. Yeah. He gets turned into a little puff of dust. But we've got a new Spider-Man movie coming out in the summer. And we've been told it's set after Endgame. So we know he's going to come back. We know he's going to be okay. We just don't know how he's going to get out of this. We're thinking the same thing about Ripley. Mm. We don't have the comfort of knowing that there's going to be another Alien movie with her coming out in the next six months. Precisely. Yes. And we've and we've seen the shot. We we we've been programmed to think, oh crikey, this is a grim scenario. They're, they're not. I mean, this is the whole movie. This is the this is their movie series. They're not going to kill the goose no. that lays the golden egg, except when this movie does lay an actual egg. It ceases to be much of a problem. Yeah, it's, at this stage, you you aren't programmed to think that they're going to go where they go, and that is delicious and very rare, and it's not to everybody's taste either. Certainly, no. if certainly not to my brother's taste, he would be much more into. He wants the um, Alien and Aliens, and and that's fine. Never the twain shall meet. No, it's it's, <laughs> it's a different audience. The mass audience definitely wants the comforts of reassuring cinema that heroin will triumph about over the horrors of good, this terrible universe good triumphs over evil yeah laughter tears curtain but in this film good is getting his ass kicked big time um, the good guys are murderers and rapists and we start from that premise and that's it and the most likable character in any of the alien movies uh, is responsible for the deaths of numerous people and is a recovering drug addict yes and he's the nicest person. Yeah. So the network has, um, will be getting that information about the scan. We get some nice sci-fi shots of antennae outside to set up the fact that they're going to be beaming the information. We're going to see those a bit later on. Yeah. And Ripley wants the entire place reported as toxic. She says this thing can't get off the planet. And it's this is her MO. She is a heroine because... She doesn't just say, kill me, shoot me in the head. She wants the thing dead because it's going to kill innocent people. Yeah. 
that's why she's the she's the heroine. She has a very nice. She has some nice moments with Ralph Brown where he goes, um, "I'm not seeing that." And they say, "I want to get off this planet." They'll nuke the whole place. No, they won't nuke the whole place. They'll come and get it. Uh, and he wants that. He wants to be rescued. She yeah. doesn't. They'll come and they'll take they'll take it out of you. They've got scientists. You'll be fine. Mm. Because he just they've Dylan and the prisoners. They have their religion. And he has his higher power as well. Absolutely. The company is his higher power. Yes. Oh, the company will help you. That's what it does. The company has left him in an arsehole planet at the end of the universe, and he's still singing its praises. Yes, he thinks the corporate god is benign. Exactly. Um, despite the evidence of his own eyes all around him. But, but as we've already established, he is thick. <laughs> it's very true, of course. Low IQ. None of the other... I mean, all the prisoners... They, I mean, they, despite all the terrible things they've done, they know the company's bad. Yes. I mean, they have no illusions about that at all. Yeah, it locked them up. It consigned them to this hellhole. And even Andrews is totally matter-of-fact, you know, has no illusions about anything, and is just there to do a job. Yeah. He's getting a paycheck. He's probably going to get a big bonus when he gets off the planet for surviving his six-month tour of duty on this hellhole. And he's doing it for his family and his kids and all of that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Moore looks to the camera, for, or Moore looks just off side of the camera from Ripley, who says she's going to go uh, and confront the thing. She says, it won't kill me. She comes out with a very strange line, um, it's down there in the basement. And then she specifically says, it's a metaphor. And I thought that's a really clunky script thing. Yes, I don't think that's in the theatrical cut. That, it deserves a cut, that line. That's the writer talking. That should have been left out, I think. Yes. And brilliantly, we get some more computer stuff. The, the network at this stage is only experienced as this very terse series of um, comments from mm. the computer screen. Absolute highest priority, Lieutenant Ripley be quarantined until arrival. And it sits there going, awaiting acknowledgement, awaiting acknowledgement. And we get a great sci-fi shot of the planet, of the of the spaceship approaching Planet Fury, which is still in eclipse. It's a whacking great big ball of black yeah. eclipsing the sun behind it because, of course, evil is on this planet. So that's the second of the shots of the planet. We've had the early ones right at the start of the film with it going into eclipse. And then, of course, Ripley goes looking for the monster. It comes out with a line that was quoted a lot at the time. You've been in my life so long I can't remember anything else. I don't like that line. It's been, what, a day or two on this planet? Yeah, the, the amount of time that she's... I mean, it, it's it's been decades in universe, but she spent so much of it in hypersleep yeah. that it's really only a few weeks, I think, from her point of view. Since she was on Earth. So, but, well, before... When she when she first went into cryosleep um, on board the Nostromo. Yes. That was, only, for her, that was only weeks ago. Yes, absolutely. That's why I don't like the line. I think, no, from your point of view, you've just had a really horrible couple of weeks. Mm. But anyway, maybe it's, again, the um, the alien will not kill her. She simply crops up in a room with Dylan saying, tried it, didn't work. And again, we get a scene which is a really horrible one to watch because it's played with absolute conviction. Ripley says to Dylan, I, I need you to kill me. And she faces the bars of this prison uh, room. And it looks like, basically, she, she expects him to break her neck. 
that she's he's going to kick her lower neck and it's just going to crack against one of the bars. And we are under no uh, doubt that he could do this. Yeah. Um, his performance definitely sells that he could do that. And we get another two shot when he oh, goes yes. no. So just as the alien in the infirmary refused to kill Ripley in a two shot and moved away from her, he does the same thing now. Same positions. He goes, I'm not killing you. And he walks away. And the deal is, you help me get rid of this thing, then I'll kill you. Mm. That's bleak. That's friendship. (laughs) I think that's what qualifies as friendship on this planet. He's a very good man to have on your side, but my God, this is a a dark characterisation. I just think he sells it so well. He's he's such an interesting character because... Mm. You never, you, he's never likable. You never get the sense of him being honest, but he means everything he says. Absolutely. And like you said before, when, he's, when, when there's that whole the fire disaster, he's looking after his flock. Mm. He, he's taking responsibility for people. He's looking after them. And that's, that's this as well, that he needs Ripley because without her... He's not going to be able to care for his flock. Absolutely. Yeah, he's he, and it's a great performance. I've seen some of the extras on the the um, special edition, and I know that he. There are shots of him saying that um, they're going to close this film down soon, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how they do it. The actors were all going, they're going to get rid of Fincher. We they basically didn't know how the film was going to end. Um, none of that comes across in his performance. It's it's. Um, it's a, just a great performance, and he's acting across a Sigourney Weaver at the top of a game. Yeah. So they off they go, out to try and face the alien that's running them up once again. Um, and they come up with a new plan uh, to uh, use the lead works to engage the piston, which will slowly close up the um, the lead basin and then pour in the molten lead. And it gives Fincher an opportunity once they're they're chasing this thing to rock out one of the other USPs of this film that was. Um, talked about at the time, which is Alien Cam. Oh yes. Oh, well, actually, it's, it's it reminded me of the Evil Dead. Oh really? Yes, with the yes. That's, the, um, I see what you mean. Yeah. The uh, the point of view rocketing through the forest mm-hmm. and eventually smashing into uh, Bruce Campbell's face. I think they were pleased about this because they were doing it in an enclosed set. And it's rolling all over the ceiling. Yeah, exactly. And it gets boring very quickly, in my opinion. Uh, it's just people in corridors running, screaming. It's a bit like the alien experience in London. Do you remember that? I remember it. I never went in it. But I did hear that they once had a child in it and he soiled himself. <laughs> yeah, that was me. Um, <laughs> uh, young Anthony. Uh, it was full of students in alien costumes and marine gears, um, laser quest with an alien branding on it, basically. I did go on a, a converted version years later when it was a James Bond ride. Oh, I would have been more interested in it. Was it any good? It was quite fun. Weirdly, one of the people... Did you attempt re-entry? One of the people um, who was working on it I actually went to school with, and he was quite startled that I recognised him. Oh. So that was weird. So, hi, how are you doing? All right, James. <laughs> All right, James, how are you? Uh, hi. Rather <laughs> degree working out, all right? meet again. So, as this pursuit of the alien through the corridors is, is occurring... Rather satisfyingly, intercut with this, is the approach of um, the spaceship and the antennae locking onto it and people getting off it. And it's essentially the, a B-plot coming to the fore. Yes. 
because they're coming to get Ripley and it's not to say hi. Lots of chasey scenes occur. Pete Postlethwaite has now fought dinosaurs and aliens. The, the piston's activated early and everyone starts panicking. And they, they, botch, the, they botch it, don't they? Yeah. yeah. There's a nice scissors joke halfway through all of this. Did you spot that? No. Yeah. So some guy comes up to Danny Webb with um, a pair of scissors pointed at him. And he goes, don't point those at me. Oh, yes. <laughs> you hold them this way. You hold them the other way around. <laughs> Someone could hurt themselves on yeah. that. Which kind of subtracts a bit of the tension, but, you know, we're still in grim, dark territory. It, that joke would have been fine at a different point in the movie. Mm. Because yeah. the, whole, the whole point that they don't have any weapons, that they're all incredibly dangerous murderers, and that they're bickering over, over stationary yeah. safety. It's, it's literally schoolboy stuff. I think the full body costumes of the alien is are perfectly fine in this film. Oh, it looks great. Um, you know, and old school techniques work perfectly fine. I did read recently that um, Ridley Scott was quite mean to the actor who played the alien in the original Alien. That for the purposes of uh, characterization, oh, yeah. he made him. Uh, firstly, he wasn't. It was too difficult for him to let him take the costume off, and he couldn't sit down. Um, so um, the what the effects team did is they like constructed a swing that he could sit on that could sort of hang up and he could sit on that just to rest. And as a result, you have on set the image of the alien sitting on a swing on his own, Ugh. not allowed to talk to anyone, and looking all lonely. <laughs> God, if imagine you turned up on that day for a set visit. It's like, oh, oh no, I'm not allowed to talk to anyone. <laughs> Kevin Alien in amongst all of this Pete Postlethwaite buys the farm gets a rather nice gets his brains blasted out through oh, a yeah. glass screen in the the conduit where they're going to pour all the, the lead is Ripley and Dylan and one other who I did not spot at any other point in the film oh yeah he he's getting the heebie-jeebies and going I'm getting out of here and Ripley's going, no, stay, and, and all of this. The CGI of the running alien, and I, I seem to remember that the a, uh, running aliens was a new thing for this film, and they were quite pleased with it. I think speed isn't frightening. I think they should have kept it as a stealth. Uh, it should I, creep up on you. I recall seeing on the extras that the running alien's actually a composited puppet. Okay. And that they had to have several... have one person doing each limb yeah. and all working in perfect synchronisation to make it look as, a, as though it's really running on all fours. Yeah, I, I mean, as an effect shot, it is what it is, but I just think... Hmm. Also, this is the first uh, Alien film in which aliens are born... An alien is born out of a quadruped rather than a human. Very true. So it's much more of an animalistic four-legged creature rather than, particularly in the first film walking around upright uh, that's a very good observation and I, I wonder if that was in fact on Finch's mind I think so yeah I do notice that in that lead tunnel when the alien comes in and is eating alive one of the other prisoners Ripley backs away from it on all fours and there's definitely meant to be a sort of little bit of mirroring going on there and which is taken to the nth degree, of course, in the next film, Alien Resurrection, about we, which we won't talk. We won't talk about that. Anyway, the the network are on their way. We get lots of shadowy sci-fi techies and men in white costumes, whilst the plan still starts to go awry. 
And um, we get some nice splatter as various prisoners run through corridors and one guy gets eviscerated and his legs come through the door. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is a very nice... nice. I, I'm not particularly a gore... I don't like gore-tastic um, horror films, but I do quite like a bit of sci-fi gore, I have to say. And ev- eventually, the, the rest of them are all picked off and the only one who's made it out is Morse. Yes. Whilst 85 has gone to greet the Wayland Itani people. Yes, Dylan is still in the conduit with with Ripley, with Ripley. and Ripley and Dylan uh, face off against the alien as it approaches them. and And I do like the scene a lot. It's a, it's a fairly inevitable scene. They have to climb up the walls of the the lead tunnel, and of course, the alien starts to climb up the walls at, uh, because it's pursuing. Um, it wants to go with Ripley, or rather, no, that's not true. It's pursuing Dylan. Yeah, and Dylan stays. And he makes the sacrifice. And I love the fact that he goes out screaming. And he's, and he's goading it yeah, as well. Yeah, he's not beaten by this thing. Come on, you pussy. Yeah. <laughs> and Ripley manages to get some uh, Danny Webb to hit the switch. And they dump the lead. Yep. And I was thinking, I really hope Dylan's dead. Because I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't want that. No, that would be a nasty, nasty way to go. Yeah. Drowning in molten lead. Danny Webb goes, gotcha. If you're a Brit, gotcha is particularly with regards to no. Falklands. Oh, yeah. I was thinking Mel Evans. <laughs> okay. Well, that's two cultural I, references. I don't remember the Falklands, so... Yeah, it was a newspaper. Um, well, I, yeah, I know the story young. that... Yeah, that, um, yeah it's, it's, it's great to shoot at a retreating ship outside the uh, designated combat area mm-hmm. and be triumphalist about it yeah um he's wrong of course because it leaps out because it's an alien and it's indestructible it's rather inevitably now uh, here we get to a bit of a change because i uh, i'm sure you you can confirm this is there no cgi shots of the alien heads cracking i believe there is because it wasn't in the version I saw, which is the special edition. I think they might be in the original one. It's not the only thing that might have been removed. I remember it from the original mm. theatrical cut. I believe it's in the, the extended cut. Yes. I, all it does is it, it explodes. And that's the because end of the they, alien. Because they set off the sprinklers. The sprinklers, which crack it. So again, it's paying off what was set up earlier. This is not a dumb film. This is a film with detail in it. Yeah. This is a film with a good filmmaker behind the scenes. This is a David Fincher, Fincher film, film, and don't forget it. And it's also going to be really grim and horrible. And, yeah. But it's going to have some humour in it. I didn't like Gone Girl. I thought I thought that he was I thought that he was really kind of wasting his time on mm. very low rent material. I thought it was misanthropic. But I loved what Rosamund Franklin did in that film. Rosamund Pike. Rosamund Pike. Rosamund Franklin. I'm mixing up the... Um... Rosalind Franklin. Rosalind Franklin, yeah. Yeah, Rosamund Pike is fantastic in that. She is. Um, but it's a really hateful film. Everyone in that film is... Uh, the, the casting in that film is really all over the place. Because you've got Neil Patrick Harris in there. Yes, yes. And, that is and Tyler Perry. Yeah. And thought... Huh? I mean... And ben, even Ben Affleck's wrong. Well, yeah, there's... Uh, Ben Affleck's just got radiation around him. He brings a sort of weird vibe to it because he should. He should. He should. Direct. He should give go, up. Go do direction. That's what he should. Yeah, do. he's a good director. Yeah, he should just do that. Mm, perfectly fine. So anyway, the alien's dead. So and the end credits roll, which is really great Yay! news. So, so thank goodness I, for that. Oh, I've written of oh, the rain music. I really like when the when the when they when the sprinklers. Uh, 
go on, and we have this wonderful like, rain-style music these descending arpeggios, and I've then written snap, crackle, and pop. <laughs> you sick little fiend, honestly. Um, and so, yeah, the alien's dead, and the Vela Yutani people come in, and one of them takes off his his face covering and, his, and his sunglasses which he's been wearing and, indoors and it's Bishop except he's like a human man good idea that it's Bishop it makes sense in context and you what when you have someone introduced late in the movie like that and they're a total stranger it robs the scene of drama that it could have the fact that it's the human bishop, or the original bishop, it creates a tension there, I think, that's that would be missing if it was just... Um, I'm, just I'm just trying to think of an actor that we could just pull out of the air and have as that character. Just, like, who's around in the early 90s? Yeah, it, c- it could have been a character actor that's really nice. To... Kyle McLaughlin. Pull that out of the air. Yeah. If it was, if it was like cameo by Kyle McLaughlin that wouldn't have the kind of energy and weight that that final confrontation needs. The idea that it's it's evil bishop. And it's been set up. Because we, we've yeah. seen it. and that, So it's not just fanboy um, ticking boxes. Because we've had bishop. The, yeah. the real bishop. The one we like. We've had him already. Yeah. And there's something slightly off about this character. And up until a certain point in the scene, he's lying his head off. Um, this whole ending from this point onwards is pretty unprecedented for a mainstream blockbuster would Absolutely. you say? Absolutely. Even with the ending of Terminator 2 it doesn't have that sense of queasiness of everything going wrong of oh shit we're heading in one direction here. Terminator 2 is really sad at the end. Yeah. It's a very emotional ending because oh the lovely Terminator dies mm. but here it's no this is it's grim inevitability. It, I know it sounds really geeky, but this reminds me of the end of Blake 7. That is the, the, <laughs> the most tragic thing I've ever heard. The to- total doom. <laughs> Everyone, No one's getting out of this alive. Um, the bad guys are going to win. Um, but the ba- oh, yeah, I see what yeah. you mean. Because in anything, the bad guys don't win. Yes. And it looks just for a second as if Ripley's going to be convinced by Bishop's offer of... You can have children. Oh, that was a that's that was a, a twist of the knife. Yeah. After Newt and her daughter in in Aliens, that's really nasty. And he he asks her to trust me. And in a brilliant moment, where you suddenly realise what's going to happen, she close up on her face, no, and she slams the the wire uh, the the door across. And, and I think it's here where I started going. She's not going to do what I think she's going to do, or rather, what is she going to do? Yeah, it's the the actual moment is when she asks Ralph Brown, "Help me," because you think, "What she, what the hell is she up to? What's she going to do?" And that's where you, your spirits start going like that. That's the nosedive point. Yeah, uh, Ralph Brown. Ralph Brown uh, then gets killed. Yeah, and he, yeah, he he. He's redeemed at the end, I think, that he was going to turn against the company. Yeah, he attempts to save, because uh, suddenly gunplay is, is on the menu. Um, Bishop tells a guy with a camera... Stop filming. Stop filming. That dates this film, because that moment then, 
was to underline the moral bankruptcy of the network and Wayland yutani that they would even stoop to film a death scene. These days, in 2019, everyone would be on their fucking iPhone. I don't think it's that they would film a death scene. It's that they don't want any evidence of the, what's about to happen, which is the company losing. Yes, that's yeah. But even so, I think um, it's the transgression of what's what's happening. She's she's infected with an alien. Everybody is dead, and even Bishop is now betrayed her. And we get an amazing moments where she he rocks out the slow mo once again. Yeah, she throws her arms out. Uh, she gets to do that, whereas Hicks and Newt didn't. They were mm. bound tightly. Um, there's nothing triumphant about it. Um, no. And the music isn't triumphant either. No. It's elegiac. Yeah. She is winning in this scene. She is completing her mission to save innocent people of the horror that's inside her that she knows. There is an intrusion of B-movie schlock when he goes, No! cross-reference um i vividly remember you and i watching revenge of the sith oh yeah you bursting out laughing at um vader's calculon <laughs> when when uh, he says what happens to Padme, and then he goes no oh, that's, that, oh you know they've added that to the end of return of the jedi as well what at the end of return of the jedi where the emperor's killing luke and and vader's oh, but torn yeah. and and then he picks up the Emperor and he goes, No! What? And I think they reuse the same audio track. You do have to ask yourself, what on earth was George Lucas... Is he, does he watch anything? Is he... George Lucas is not a creative man. He's an excellent businessman. He's a project manager. That's about as far as it goes. Um, hey, they're not project managers. Really? I know lots of project managers. Some of them are wonderful people. I know lots of project managers as well. Well... Anyway, um, on the um, extras for this uh, DVD, the effects guys say that they wish that the flames behind Ripley were slightly better. Yeah. I think it's perfectly. I think it's perfectly fine. Notably, in the extended version, ah, I know what you're going to say. Arms out, and she evaporates into uh, nothing before she hits the uh, um, the, the furnace. But in the extend in the theatrical cut. The alien bursts out and she holds on to it. Mm. And you just see her fall into the distance and, and disappear. She doesn't she doesn't burn away. When I first saw the special edition, I was really annoyed that that had been removed. Now, rewatching it, I think it's the right decision. Yeah. Do you agree? Mm. I think it's I think it's it's too on the nose. We know what we need and it should be about it. We don't need to see a special effects shot of the chest burst. It should be about Ripley's moment. Yeah. And the film ends brilliantly. We have this montage of the, the facility shutting down, Morse is being dragged away in chains. And, and the planet. And the planet emerges from the cliffs. Exactly. I like Morse's even... Good, good God knows what's going to happen to him. But he's being shoved along and he just turns and says, Oh, fuck you. Yes. Just still talking back to people who are going to kill him. And his leg is in, in um, uh, some sort of scaffolding, bandages, because he was shot during yeah. the scene. They do carry that out of detail. There is a sense with all the doors slamming shut of not only finality, but also, if you bear in mind the Fincher and the production and all of that, that he's walking away from this, there would be no rap party. 
Freddy in three. No. He would stagger out of that, going, "Well, that went badly." Um, the, and, last, the last spoken line of dialogue is "fuck you." Ripley's last line is very difficult to hear. She's on the gantry and almost sotto voce, she says, "You're crazy." Oh yes. And then she off she goes. I've always loved the ending of of this film. Um, I love the brutality of it. I love it that we're left with the um, the network still pinging messages saying we're going to close the facility down and all of that. And then, and then we have the the final um, voiceover from Ripley from the end of the first film. Yeah. Signing off. Yeah. Brilliant. End of transmission. So, people say that this isn't, um, you know, uh, it's, that it's odd, that it's a mess, but it's it's a it's a great film. It's, it's really good. It's a really terrific work of science fiction. It's really intelligent. It is dark it's really chocolate. Thoughtful. I love dark chocolate. Um, I do love dark chocolate. Yes. Great. Uh, tastes like. Um, uh, the way chocolate should taste? Uh, tastes like blackness. And that's what Alien 3 tastes like. Oh, delicious blackness. I think... Uh, in, in, uh, I have my brother's voice in my head saying, total, <laughs> total bollocks. Um, and that, for me, would be a mass audience reaction. Oh, yeah, they hated it. Yeah. But I, mean, I, I agree how with could, you. How, how, could the, how could they possibly have done anything else? It's incredibly miserable. It's, it's, it's fantastically grim dark these days when people are watching Game of Thrones, which is incredibly grim. I think they might be more primed to something like this. Um, but the context there justifies it because it's about medieval battles and, and whatnot. So you're expecting yeah. that sort of thing. Whereas here, I mean, in a sense, it's a bit like the response to um, Zack Snyder's DC movies mm-hmm. that we're so used to. Superman movies and to a degree Batman movies not being you know, plunged into the despairing depths of the human psyche but the difference is that Zack Snyder is a complete hack and has no idea what he's doing yes. whereas David Fincher is actually a master craftsman yes uh, I right think from his him. first movie even where he's being bossed around by executives who don't know what they want he's still capable of making this yes it's an extraordinary debut and it's a film I keep on returning to, and sometimes I have to ask myself why. But I think it's it's it is the grimness of it. It's the strength of the performances. It's Weaver being so charismatic, um, and and there are blocks of it where it's perfectly executed. The opening, the ending, um, uh, the the um, the scanning sequence, all of that sort of stuff. It's my favourite of the Alien movies. Of all of them. Yes. That's Alien, mm-hmm. Aliens, Alien Three. Alien Resurrection, Prometheus, Alien Covenant, the two Alien versus Predators. I think that's it. Vastly better than Prometheus and Last Covenant, in oh, my opinion. Covenant was a sorry joke. Ridley, but yeah, Reti- sorry. Re- time for you to retire, Ridley Scott. Yeah, uh, I would say um, carry on being a producer of the Good Fight, as I mentioned on Twitter last yeah. night. <laughs> while while Donald Trump is whining about Saturday Night Live making fun of him. The Good Fight is a show where he is explicitly referred to as an enemy of American ideals. (laughs) He is referred to by name as a menace to society. And he's not even aware of it because it's on on video on demand and he can't work the buttons. I'd say... um, And and it's produced by Ridley Scott. Aliens is a nice shoot-em-up, a well-executed shoot-em-up that lacks depth. I don't really like action movies. Alien is a... um, it's a very well executed um, haunted house movie. Haunted house movie, Alien Three, 
right off the chart for Alien, um, Alien 3 is not a movie movie it feels much more like a film because it has a depth and an intelligence that the others don't have and everything after this you can just discount I completely agree because Prometheus is trying for something but it should never have been an alien movie well we've you and I have talked before about how we think that Ridley Scott is actually using this as to deal with grief um, yeah. and the meaning of life and and all of that and okay fine and also he's a workaholic and he needs to um, shift down a gear and pick better scripts and unfortunately and he had a Damon Lindelof script for um, Prometheus oh. um, but that does not excuse Last Covenant which was um, Last Covenant that's another biblical reference did you know that Damon Lindelof had a cameo in an episode of House which <laughs> consists solely of him being kicked in the bollocks by Olivia Wilde I must track it down I recommend it. Thanks to Anthony for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts with more than 60 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at Cinema underscore Limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, this is Rumour Control. These are the facts. Survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off.